Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Welcome to episode 252 with my guest, me. <laughs> so weird. Um, my friend Lisa Arch, who was a previous guest, has been uh, bugging me for about the last year uh, to do an episode where I get interviewed, and there's also been listeners that have been asking for this same thing, um, because my stories kind of spread, you know, little bits and pieces throughout the uh, catalog of 251 uh, episodes that, that we have, and it made sense to me to, to do one so that new listeners can have a place to go and um, hear my story, um, should they want to. Uh, I don't know how much new stuff there is uh, for people that have listened to all the episodes. There, there's a little bit of new stuff, but my fear in putting this up, and I'm very nervous about, about putting this up, is that um, it just, it, it especially in light of the recent episodes where I've been uh, talking about my issues a lot and stuff regarding my relationship with my mom it just feeling like overkill um but um i'm deciding to put this episode up here this week anyway um and uh i guess i want to say i i um i'm looking forward to um closing a chapter uh, of my life, the stuff that I've been talking about these last couple of weeks, um, or trying to close it because I'm really getting to the point where I'm sick of, I'm sick of um, talking about it. I'm sick of thinking about it. I'm f- sick of living it. Um, and I guess what I'm saying is to those of you that are sick of hearing about it, I get it. I get it. Um, so the timing of this week's episode uh, may seem a little bit like Jesus, Paul, you know, get over yourself i know that's probably the mean part of my brain but you guys get it you know what it's like when you don't know where reality uh is on an issue and um that's kind of that's kind of where i'm at on 
not not knowing um, if this is just, oh, shut up. Oh, my God, shut up. Uh, there was a question that, uh, two things that after I recorded the, the interview with, uh, Lisa, there was two things that I went, oh, I wish, I wish I would have answered that. And I wish I would have, um, uh, clarified more. And there's a question that she asks in the interview, um, where she says, you know, when you can't get anything done, how do you know when it's your, your depression or you just being lazy? And, I appreciate that question because I think a lot of people that don't understand depression, and probably a lot of us who experience depression, um, don't really know the answer and would like to know the answer to that. But it's a really uh, delicate question to ask because it can be insulting to the to the other person. You know, as as if you're you know saying that you're you're using it as an excuse. I think that was the way she phrased it, and. Um, and what I would have liked to have said um, was, well, when you're feeling vital and healthy, what is your pro- productivity like then? Well, that is who you are. Um, and we don't ask people when they have the flu. You know, we don't we don't call ourselves lazy when we stay home because we have the flu. Um, and depression and anxiety it, it's a flu on our soul and our heart and our head and our and our body um but because there aren't yet machines where we can verify that scientifically we live in this nebulous place where we beat ourselves up i, I had a, t- a day like that today which was not very productive and uh and i'm just in a place right now of of just Hating the fall, hating myself, hating my story, um, hating, uh, not hating might be too strong of a word, but just, uh, just want to sleep it all away. Um, the other question that I, that I didn't really ask or we didn't touch on is, you know, when I interview somebody, um, one of the first things I ask is, where are you from? You know, how many kids in your family? You know, if you went to college, where do you go to college? And we didn't, we didn't, uh, answer that. So I'm just going to give you a real brief rundown of that. I was born in South Holland, Illinois. It's a south suburb of Chicago. And then my family moved. Oh, and, uh, my brother, who was a grade ahead of me, and we had a cousin who came and lived with us when I was, uh, nine months old. He came or 11 months old. He came actually the day that Kennedy was, uh, was assassinated. Um, and my cousin John, and he lived with us until uh, he was in his early 20s and got married. Um, I went to a Catholic grade school, and I went to a public high school, um, went to Indiana University, changed my major from pre-med to theater. Um, when I got out, I wanted to try to make, make my living as an actor. It wasn't really working out. I enrolled at the Second City's training program. Um, in Chicago and did not get invited to be a part of the troupe. Um, and uh, so I started doing stand-up comedy and that met my wife the, pretty much the same year I started doing stand-up. It was 1987. Um, we started dating and uh, by the next year she was living with me and I was making my living full-time doing stand-up. We moved to LA in 1994. Uh, I got a job writing marketing copy for the WB Network. Um, a year later, Carla and I officially got married. Uh, and I got uh, Dinner in a Movie, which was a TV show I did for the next 16 years. Uh, I was on TBS. 
And then uh, the last year I was doing a dinner and a movie, I started doing this podcast. It was 2011, and this is a question that I didn't answer, is what led me to begin the podcast, to start the podcast. And it was that in late 2010, I went off my meds and was convinced that I really needed to kill myself, that my life was not worth living, and that I would never feel joy again. And then I realized, oh, that's the depression. And I realized I've been in therapy, seeing a psychiatrist, been in support groups for 10 years, and I got fooled by it. I thought somebody's somebody needs to talk about this. And I thought the podcast would be a perfect medium. So that's what led me to start the podcast. And here we are now. And enjoy and go fuck yourself. My God, somebody does what I've been doing. There's shame. You have boundary issues. I feel guilty for hating my mom. I will be high by 4 p.m. You feel helpless. I will be in hell by 4.15. Prison was not easy, but I deserved it. I think I'm just addicted to lying. I rubbed my body in mud and I laid in the swamp. Didn't move for six hours. I looked forward to and dreaded each meal at the same time. I think I desperately, desperately wanted to talk about it, but I didn't know how to start the conversation. And that's when I, I called the suicide hotline. A good Craigslist experience is if you are alive at the end of it. So, <laughs> so that is when I first felt love. Like I first felt reaching out to the people and sharing with the other people. Um, this intimate connection where people do stuff for each other without wanting something in return. Yeah, I just I surrender. I think I was 28, and that was the first time I ever experienced that, and it was amazing. And we're rolling. Oh, look at that. Hi. <laughs> Normally, this is where I'd say I'm here with such and such, and I know you from such and such. Oh, but I say it instead. You say it instead. Wow. Welcome to uh, this episode of the Mental Illness Happy Hour. I'm Lisa Arch, and I'm here with Paul Gilmartin, who is eternally depressed and now has a show to prove it <laughs> um i asked you what a few months ago mm -hmm. if i i said you know i've heard some of your episodes obviously i've been a guest and i think that it would be beneficial for both you and your listeners if you would let me interview you on your show and you were instantly First of all, I said, who are you? <laughs> right, and then I reintroduced myself. You look so familiar. <laughs> you said I used to be your co-host on Dinner right, and a Movie. Exactly. I live around the block from you. Correct. We do Christmas Eves at each other's Every houses. Year for, what, 10 years now? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You've come to me with some of your deepest, darkest secrets yes. and struggles. Yes, you And have. I said, yes, I know you. You cook uh, dry turkey. No, no, I make never, the best. You've never turkey. cooked dry turkey. How I was trying to you? think of some cooking insult. Yeah, but why? But there's would you really do nothing that? that hurts. There's nothing you have you've ever cooked that was. Uh, oh no, there's tons of stuff. Not that I've tasted. No, not that you've tasted because yeah. you became a person who ate my food after I was a good cook. Yeah. Um, but I thought I would do your audience a favor to just in one sentence sum up who you and I are, so mm. that they would understand. Like I had a in very, one sentence. Well, I'll, you'll understand in a <laughs> okay. minute. But I wanted. I wanted to interview you specifically because I am not depressed, nor mm -hmm. have I ever been. I've been deeply sad. I've been moody. I've been a total bitch, but I've never been depressed. Yet most of my friends, or a good chunk of my friends, are uh, some level of depressed or addicted or just unhappy. And I thought it would be really cool 
as a person coming from a very different place to be able to ask you questions about the way your brain works. Awesome. As well as what's going on with you. But um, so you and I go to this Christmas party every year and we mm -hmm. see each other there. And last year we had an exchange that I will always remember. And it's very brief, but it completely explains who we are. I gave you a big hug and kiss and said, hey, how are you? And you said, well, you know, it's the holidays, so I'm pretty down. And I went, yeah, I'm sorry. And then you go, how are you? And I go, well, you know, it's the holidays, so <laughs> I'm pretty happy. <laughs> Which I think is so perfect. It's That's it. That's it. That's it in a nutshell. That Thanks is, for coming. Thanks it, for... Uh... Yeah. Thanks for interviewing me. Thank you for letting me do this. Is it nerve-wracking for you being on that end of things? Uh, being No, it's kind of exciting in a way because I think there's a part of me that can never um, completely feel like I'm being seen and felt and heard enough. Right. And and I get um, – uh, and the second reason is I, I get emails from people that say, where can I hear your story? Wow. And so I knew it would be a good idea to have one episode where I talk about all that shit. Right. Um, and then I can just direct them to that. But I'm also afraid that the people that are regular listeners are going to be like, oh, my God, is he ever going to stop talking about himself? Right. But everything that I've heard, you give snippets of, you know, of your, I don't know, of your problems, of your issues, of your current mood. But aside from the stuff with your mom and what you've talked about about your dad, I don't think you delve into it that much. And also, I really think you'll be surprised. I mean, I think I'm I'm going to be asking you some questions that are very pointed and like, you know, uh, as if I'm coming from a place of pure ignorance about how your brain That's works. probably not hard for you to do. It, oh, my God. It's so not. I'm so, you know what? I'm so happy you just said that because, and I kind of said this to you earlier, but I'm this is very nerve wracking for me. I'm already breaking out into a sweat because I look, we we've been friends for many, many years now. Mm -hmm. And I think we both know that I'm a great gal. I'm probably the least intelligent person, you know, at least that about is not true. Okay, then you know, some pretty stupid people. <laughs> no, okay, ignorant. I'm the most ignorant. I'm naive. I'm not naive, though. I you have your interests right and your interests are your interests yes. and outside of that you don't feel passionately right. about other things so you don't pay attention to them correct but they're pretty important things that I don't pay attention to and so I always feel really stupid around you and my husband and Carla when we go out but although I don't know if it's you guys have done this on purpose <laughs> but like the last year or so politics rarely come up when we're all out to dinner and I think it's because you all started to feel sorry for no me. not at all oh, really not at all oh. no I think we just sometimes like talking about other things oh well that's nice but here's how uh, you know a sample conversation would, would go it'd be like hey do you know did you see that thing on the in the Middle East oh yeah what's his, his name is in power now and there'll be a silence and Lisa go I can make a hat out of a napkin <laughs> yep yeah and then i would always go home and feel ashamed and say you to russ not. i really should start i you should, should a little bit uh, you know i'm a grown woman with a child and i know very little about what's going everybody on everybody has the, their wheelhouse yeah. and your wheelhouse is connecting to people yeah. and and uh being a, a good friend no thanks i'll take that 
All right, so do we just go right into this? Yeah. Okay, so um, first thing I want to ask, because I know um, you've been dealing a lot more on air lately with what has happened with your mom, mm-hmm. um, and um, you know, recently you mentioned that, that she had actually heard mm-hmm. some of the shows. You didn't really say, uh, as far as I recall, how you felt about the fact that she has listened and that she could be listening at any time now. Like, were you living in a world before where you just thought this show existed in a vacuum and there was no way she could hear it? Um, I always knew there was the possibility, but it was um, I had resigned myself to the fact that this is my story and I'm going to share it. And um, if somebody doesn't like it, um, that's that's their problem right. because i'm i'm not saying anything that isn't true right. and it's my experience and somebody else's experience they may have a different reality that you know i, I think my mom has her own reality and um our realities don't overlap right. and that's one of the reasons why i don't have contact with her um uh but it's but it's hard because now knowing that she might be listening to an episode, um, I feel like um, like I extricated myself from a situation um, that was painful to me, and now it's there's. I don't want to use a metaphor that's that's hurtful, but <laughs> I feel like I got away from um, somebody who was unaware that they were abusive towards me right and now they're like on my back porch looking in through the window right you know what i mean yeah it's and i and i don't the way that my mom isn't is is not intentionally malicious but i don't think she is aware of how she can hurt people and i can be the same way to Mm -hmm. other people i can be inconsiderate and um short and uh you know, so it's not like I don't think she's a terrible person. I just yeah, can't have. I just can't have her. Being inconsiderate and short to being, you know, abusive to a child. And I have heard you say that you do believe that she's sick and that no. maybe she really, genuinely doesn't see it the way it actually happened. And that if that's the case, that that your your heart is broken for her. To think that she yes. did nothing wrong. Yes, it is. Um, it is, and most of the people, the people who have survived some some incest, um, that parent is usually incapable of seeing mm-hmm. what they did, at least in the light that the person who had experienced it can can see it. So I'm not surprised why my mom would be any different than other parents who. Um, incest their children be it covertly or overtly and you know my mom's incest of me was not overt there was no touching of my genitals but it was tons of boundary crossing and um i suppose i should i should give the details of what it is because this is the episode where i go over all of it so um uh the, the first one i remember is uh and and talking about it again um it's uh, some shame, 
almost always comes up some guilt that I'm making too big of a deal of it. Um, Where does the shame come from? What what gives you shame in talking about this? People picturing oh, what happened to me, happening to me. You know, the mm-hmm. um, she took my temperature rectally till I was eight years old and asked her, why do we still do it this way? And she said, because I'm afraid that you're going to bite down on the thermometer. And I remember believing her, but also a part of me feeling feeling like I was being tricked um, mm. and just banishing that thought. And it didn't really come back up again until I was in a, in a support group about, um, about five years ago. But, um, I think part of the shame is that when I, every time I share that, I know that people are picturing the eight year old me with a thermometer in my butt. And it, I would imagine if somebody who has been, um, uh, raped by somebody mm-hmm. probably feels a similar thing when they have to describe it because you're it's just well this is a really good place for me to tell you as a listener or as a listener to you on my couch and as a listener to the podcast that I have ne- whenever I have heard you mention these things if I'm being very frank I have pictured myself as the child yeah. I've pictured myself as you like you I instantly okay. get in the headspace of what would that have been like. So I'm not picturing it as a scene. Does that make sense? Yes. I'm picturing it as oh my god that oh god that just must have been so terrifying and how awful to speak up for yourself and not you know be heard and all of that stuff. Well, well the funny thing is is like most people who've experienced something like that is at the time your brain does this thing of minimizing it and telling you that it's something else so the real impact of it doesn't really hit you for years sometimes decades Mm -hmm. and mine didn't hit me for decades and um and really the pattern of things that she would do that objectified me was what finally broke things loose for me um you know she would make me feel like I was the one that had the issue if I wanted to cover up uh, around her you know there she would walk in on the in me in the bathroom when I would be in the bathroom ask me questions about uh, you know is your how much pubic hair do you do you have um wow. when I would be at the doctor's office um there was one really really traumatic uh, event um that that she didn't perpetrate but she just sat there it, I was at the doctor's office and um I had problems with my testicles when I was a kid. They hadn't descended. Mm -hmm. And so I'd have to go to these awful doctor appointments and, you know, they'd grab your testicles and it always really hurt. And, um, and I would just kind of tough it out because my, my brother had always been the one that, that, um, was not afraid to voice something to right. cause a, a problem at the doctor's office or I don't want a shot. Oh, wow. And so I was consciously said, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to take whatever, right. whatever comes my way. So I never said anything at the, at these uh, visits. I just kind of go into numb, numb yeah. mode. And, um, there was one, one instance in particular, uh, that I'd never really given, uh, weight to. I was, I think I was about 10 or 11 years old and I was, um, it was at the University of Chicago and they, um, the nurse said, okay, uh, take your clothes off and lay down on the table. 
And so I'm laying on the table, and I'm completely naked, and they didn't give me anything to, to cover up with. My mom would always be in the room, um, which, you know, I I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with um but wrong, nothing necessarily wrong with the, the fact that your mom was in the room or the yeah, fact while, that they didn't cover while, you up. While I'm, while I'm uh, naked. But the fact that yeah. she didn't say, can we get something right. for my child to go? Because I didn't know I could ask for something right. to cover up. So I'm sitting there for like 10 minutes. It's cold. I'm completely naked. Um, and I'm just kind of going into numb mode. And and then the doctor comes in with a herd of people, like six or seven interns. And I could feel myself i don't know if it's dissociating or what you would call it but just like you know when your face just all of a sudden feels like it's on fire yes. and and you're just like ah. and almost like i was watching mm-hmm. myself and and the doctor it's touching me like i'm a piece of meat you know talking about what's wrong with my testicles and grabbing them and and it hurts God. and and I'm just staring at the ceiling, praying for, for it to be over. And I looked over and I made eye contact with a female uh, intern. And she looked at me like, I am so sorry that this is happening to you. And all of a sudden, I felt all this emotion come up. And I could feel myself starting to cry. And I was like, I don't want to cry right in front of these people. And then I just buried that thing but nothing was spoken about it my mom didn't ask me she, there was no mention of that must have been really hard for you there was no she didn't say anything to the doctors and but, I Paul, the first time you told me this story mm-hmm. my son was I think five years old and I remember sobbing or at least crying when you told uh, me this because I said Paul I think you were laughing <laughs> you were so laughing so similar. hard you were crying right, exactly. yeah. <laughs> Um, but that's because I was picturing you now laying naked on a table and some doctor squeezing your balls. Uh, no, I, from the second you got in there and got on the table and your clothes were off and your mom didn't say, do you have a blanket? Can I, is there anything we can cover him up with? That alone is, that's when I remember saying to you, your, your mom had no maternal instinct. There was no sense of I have to protect him or anything like that. And that, and then to have all, you know, clearly it's a teaching hospital. So all these people are walking and I would say, I'm sorry, this is a child and you're mm-hmm. dealing with his penis and, and you can't, you, you, please. This no. is overwhelming. Yeah, this to is a, not to okay. a fucking 11 exactly. year old child who's Learn, ashamed of his body exactly. to begin with. Learn about testicles somewhere yes. else. So you were so unprotected and yeah. that's. Well, that didn't, I, that didn't occur to me until I was um, about 47 or 48 years old and I'd gone to a support group um, around intimacy struggles. Mm-hmm. And um, and that's when it occurred to me, the double whammy of not only did my mom not protect me, but she would break down and cry when I was seven or eight years old and I would have to go comfort her and mm-hmm. she would complain about her marriage and how she was tired of, you know, dealing with all of our what you call us bastards how i'm so sick of all you bastards and i'm just going to leave and i would have to say we're going to be better we're going to be better mom and um and and that's when i really felt the abandonment and it was at a support group and i remember um just somebody said how are you doing i think they could see in my face that i was on the verge of tears and i said i'm not doing too well and um and 
they gave me a hug and I just cried on their shoulder for about 15 minutes. And that was, that was the beginning of really starting to heal and really starting to see how sick my relationship was mm-hmm. with my mom, that she was incapable of being the mom that, that I needed her to be. And to be fair to her, her mom was one of the coldest people I've, I've ever met. Mm-hmm. Um, her father left when she was a child. She was raised by friends of the family, the father of whom was an alcoholic. Wow. The son who I think might have been creepy. Mm-hmm. So um, I think she was, she, my mom is a product of, of, of her environment. Right. Um, so I don't, um, I'm, I'm caught between that place where I want to say I don't blame her, but uh, also, an adult has a certain responsibility. How do how do you not know that some of that stuff is is fucking right. wrong? But maybe there, maybe it's just not there. Maybe there's just no wiring uh, there. I I, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, no. Look, but it's but do you feel that it's okay to not blame her, but still not talk to her, still protect yes. yourself? Yes, See, great. And and uh, I've decided that I can love her, but it has to be from afar. Right. It, that's that's I have compassion. For what she's been through, I know that that um, everybody has their issues. Those are some of her issues. Right. Um, but it's I've tried to express myself to her. You know, she grabbed my butt until I was in my twenties and made her stop. She'd, you know, tell me how attractive I was, and I thought, you know, I'm lucky to have a mom that 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 gives me praise because as critical and as nitpicky as my mom could be about things, she could also lavish tons of praise on you. Right. Give you attention. I have good memories with with my mom, but I also have ones where I, all of a sudden, it's like a switch would flip and and I would just not feel emotionally safe around her. Right. Um, where I would feel, you know, like she was drinking me in with her eyes and... Uh, you know, she would she would call and and say, you know, talk to me like in a flirty tone, like "Hello, Mr. Gilmartin, this is Mrs. Gilmartin." And if I would say, "Please don't do that," she would act like I was the one that had the problem. Right. So all of these things, and I'm, I don't think I'm even listing. No, you're not. I mean, all I... of the all of the things that helped me see this pattern as a whole. Right. When I finally gave weight to the pattern, because I had ex- I could explain each individual thing away right but when i saw the pattern as a whole it was undeniable to me that i felt like an object yes. around this person and that was so painful and the idea that i had created of her to survive which was of a caring loving nurturing mom popped and it was like someone had had died and i wanted to die right. i i i just uh I was so confused. I was so heartbroken. I was so um, going back and forth between this is all in your head and no, this is the truth. And I still do that today, but it started out as 80% you're making too big of a deal and 20% no, you're taking care of yourself. And now it's the reverse. Um, 80% you're taking care of yourself and 20% you're a bad son. You're just a, a... a baby, an exaggerator. Right. You're you're doing this for uh, attention. Um, I I think there are other things that. Here's one of my fears right now as I'm sharing this is that it's that I won't share enough of the things that happened to me and people will think, oh, here's a guy that just loves to be in the limelight, right? And he is 
none of this is not traumatic this is just he's he's too sensitive um right but uh, yeah so you're saying that you're afraid that people will think that not enough happened to you to exactly make, to give you permission to feel this way exactly but that's just bullshit because it mm. could it doesn't matter it could have just been that thing in the doctor's office. It could have just been the thing that happened to you in the bathtub that you've mentioned uh, several oh, times. Oh, that's the other one that I yeah. should I should yeah. mention, too, for people that haven't heard this episode, was when I was uh, 11 or 12. 11 was a really fucked up oh year God. for me. And, I mean, that's old. It's That's old. That's... Yeah. Yeah, okay, I'm sorry. Um, a neighborhood kid molested me, too. And he was, I think, 14 or 15. And... um he our our families would sometimes vacation together and we were staying in the same uh house on uh, on Lake Michigan in a place called Grand Beach Michigan and um he i just loved being around you know how little kids are you oh love gosh. hanging around an older kid you love their attention absolutely and um he was like let's uh let's go hang out in the car and i was like all right whatever and um and he's like, I want to show you something. And he pulled his pants down and he had a gigantic erection. And, you know, it was, uh, it didn't do anything for me sexually, but I right. remember like, wow, that's oh, fucking right. big. And, right. and he was, he, I just remember he was saying like, look at all this meat. Oh my and, God. and, and I, I don't, I didn't remember, I remember kind of wondering why was he doing this? Right. But, you just always, when you're thrown into the world of the older kid, you just assume this is just another thing that yes. older people do. Right. And he said, tonight we're going to have a party. You and I are going to have a party tonight. And we are sleeping in the same room. And so he said, let's give each other blowjobs. And and I, I can't remember if I knew what one was or not, but I remember thinking I don't want to do this, but I also want to please right. him because I want to be his friend. And he... I can't remember who did it first, um, but he I think he went under the covers and I think he put his mouth on my penis or maybe I did it first to him. But I, I couldn't put my mouth on his penis. So I wet my hand and I put my hand on his right. penis. And and then I was like, and I you can't were 11. Yeah. And I thought I can't I can't do this. So I came back up from from underneath the covers and I said, I can't do this. And he didn't. He didn't force uh, the issue, and I think he did it briefly to me. I, I don't really remember. Right. It's it's kind of fuzzy. But what I do remember is, like, the next morning, um, all of the families, we were in the living room, and we were watching TV, and Nixon was uh, resigning from oh, wow. from office. And I, I think back to that weekend, and I think, no wonder I have anxiety. It, it you know the world of adults was not to be trusted yeah it, it was it was a dark it was a dark weekend um Jeez, man and so then a year later the and this is the last thing that i want to share on the because uh, I, I really want to um I, i'm really uh getting very self-conscious about talking about this as 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 much as as I am totally, uh, okay. which I get, I okay. totally get. But has the response been grateful from listeners? Yes, incredible. Yes, yeah, incredible. So. I got an email today from a nurse who is also a mom and has a son, and it was in many ways the email I've wanted to get my whole life. Wow! And it was, um, and I've gotten them from other people, but something about getting it from a nurse, mm -hmm. um, 
so she knows what it's like to be in that hospital. Right. She knows at what age it's inappropriate mm. to do the thermometer right. thing. She knows what it's like to be a mom. Right. Um, she works in, uh, she's also a psychiatric nurse, so she understands, and she basically said, you were 100% sexually abused. Wow. You know, what, and it sinks in for a while, and I, and I'm able to take it in, and then it kind of dissipates, and my brain will go back to that thing. But over time, it's right. getting better. So right. the last thing, um, I was 12 years old, and, um, I, was playing and I fell down in some gravel, got gravel in my knee, and my mom said, well, let's get you in the bathtub. And my mm-hmm. first thought was, that's gross. I'm too old. Right. And then I th- pictured my mom doing what she always does. You know, I, I thought I'll put a bathing suit on. And then I anticipated sure. my mom doing what she would normally do, which would be to kind of um, make me feel like I'm weird for being for uncomfortable it- being naked around right. her because she would always say, you know, it's nothing I haven't seen before. I saw it before you did. And so I decided not to wear the bathing suit. And so the tub is running. I get in the tub and I'm waiting for her to come in and I become very uh, aroused. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking, what are you, some kind of monster? Please, erection, please go down. And my mom comes in and she's washing my knee and she no mention of it. But the whole time I just remember feeling um, it was just surreal. It was just yeah. a surreal feeling. And, um, I don't think I've ever shared this on the, on the podcast, but shortly after that, um, uh, a neighbor mom was, was over and she and my mom were talking, um, in the living room and I don't know what overcame me, but I took all my clothes off and I came down the stairs and, I was spying around the corner of watching them and I was incredibly aroused and I didn't know why I was doing this. I didn't. It was like the most powerful arousal I'd ever felt. Wow. And and the other mom saw me. She didn't see that I was naked, but she saw me spying. Right. And she said, it's not polite to eavesdrop. And I immediately thought, oh my God, she knows what I did. Right. She knows I'm a, I'm a monster. And from that day forward, I have felt dirty. I have felt um, perverted, um, weird. And it wasn't until I put the bathtub and the other stuff together that I was able to begin to forgive myself Mm -hmm. for that 12-year-old me doing that. I remember going to dinner that night with my family and I couldn't even eat. I was just so sick to my stomach at, at myself and how weird, uh, how weird I was. Wow. So those are the, those are the big pieces of, um, of the, the stuff that I take exception, um, that's such a weird phrase. Take exception. <laughs> my mom. I take reason, exception with this. Of the things that happened. But, you know, if my mom was the type of person that could say, um, I was sick. Uh, I am so sorry. Mm-hmm. You deserved better. Um, I take ownership of what happened to you. I would definitely try to have a relationship that with her. That would make a, a huge yes, difference. But th- I have tried to be seen and heard and it's as if there's a part of her that 
can't see a part of me that she doesn't want to see. That's my interpretation of it. And it's just too painful. Every time I try to, to draw a boundary, you know, her toe just creeps over, oh, yeah. over the boundary. Absolutely. And, it, and I, I think the, one of the final things for me was, was one of the last times I was around her and she has this way of if you don't agree with her point of view, she will badger you until you change your mind or give in. Mm-hmm. And she was doing that to me and hammering away. And I was saying, I don't want to talk about this anymore. And she would hammer away. And and then she like a switch flipped and she was like, let's read some spiritual literature together. And I was still all wound up from right. her hammering away at me. And I said, Mom, I know that you want to feel closer to me, but I don't feel safe around you. And she it was like she looked right through me. There was no question of, oh, my God, what am, why, why right. do you feel that way? Can you tell me what it is that I'm doing that right. makes you feel unsafe? It's like she didn't want to hear it. And... I think there's almost like a gene in her or some type of trauma that her brain will go to any lengths not to feel shame. She must have experienced right. tremendous shame, which I think if you accept blame, I think the shame probably right. follows quickly afterwards. And I think there's probably something in her because I see it in so many of these adults that abused kids. Mm-hmm. Um, it's... That is the biggest reason why I don't have contact with her. Those, those two. Yes. And I'm at peace with it now. Well, that's I'm huge. at peace. Um, I mean, I will say anytime you say, you know, I've thought about telling her and I've thought about, I always just want to like, even when Dr. Zucker was, was talking to you and saying, Paul, she's never going to hear you. I was like, yes. But I, I, I still wonder if you really believe that that she literally will never be able to hear it. I do that. I, I do believe that now. Right. When I got the most recent letter from her after she listened to the podcast right. and said, why would you say that I molested you? Um, that's that's when I I just knew if... I mean, I don't know what she listened to in the podcast. Right. You know, if she just heard me in passing say that I'm an incest survivor. Um, I, and, and she has blanked those things out from her mind. Right. Of course she would say that but if she um were told the things that happened and still uh i'm sure she would still say the same thing those didn't happen because she or i don't see anything wrong i did nothing wrong yeah Uh, i think it's more likely that she would say i have no memory of those things happening and it's entirely possible that that she doesn't right um but i can't change that and i have to protect myself because i i it sounds corny, but there's that little kid in me that's still afraid of the world, and I, I have to protect yeah. uh, that little kid and learn how to take care uh, of myself. To, in many ways, I'm still, uh, you know, I'll go for stretches of weeks of not opening my mail, not practicing any kind of self care, and really kind of regress emotionally. Mm-hmm. And if I subject myself to people that mistreat me and I don't advocate for myself that's what happens as I begin I begin to regress right and so um there yeah that that's kind of where where I'm at with so just with that. out of you know curiosity if you heard tomorrow that your mom passed away tremendous relief tremendous relief tremendous relief wow I would hope that that she went peacefully yes and I would hope that um b- both physically and mentally because uh, I don't wish her 
um, I don't wish her any suffering, pain or suffering at all. And that's one of the things I think that kept me coming back for so many years. That's not to say I haven't had fucking rage where I wanted to knock her teeth in as I'm recalling uh, things. Um, But it's my, my overwhelming feeling towards her is one of sadness and loss. Um, But it's, the the support that I have received from listeners and friends like yeah. you, um, it's like I, it's like I've got a hundred adopted moms right. that just circle the wagons for me. And one of one of the most touching emails I ever got was from a mom shortly after I revealed a lot of the stuff that that happened. And this woman just said, "I want to kick your mom in the cunt." <laughs> And while I don't want anyone to kick my mom in the cunt, <laughs> I fucking loved yes. that woman's anger because yeah. nobody got angry for me as a kid. I couldn't get angry for myself right. as a as a kid. And um, it's uh, all of this stuff that happened to me is so common. Yeah. It's so it's- common. And so many moms do this. <laughs> To kids, I it, cannot fathom, Paul. I, I feel in many ways that that is like my mission in life is to talk about surviving um, not only sexual abuse, but incest and especially incest committed by uh, by females. Um, yeah. it, it is one of the last few topics um, that is grossly misunderstood in, in our society. Um, it's... I get really angry oh, I, when I when I hear people talk about um, sexual abusers as if they can only be male. Right. It it I can't even describe the rage that that comes up in me. I think that's the general belief. I really yeah. do. And, and I mean, I think I have heard very few stories like this. Clearly, they exist. Um, I think it is a it, somewhat more difficult thing to accept, which is so stupid in a way. But you just, I think you can't imagine because you consider female and male sexual urges to be so different. Mm-hmm. You can't imagine that a woman, you know, and you also hear that, that rape is not sex, it's violence. And, and then I think you couple all of that together. Well, so then molestation must be the same thing. And a woman would never be aroused enough to, you know what I mean? And mm-hmm. all of those thoughts. Um, but clearly, that is not the case. And it is still, it, it is coming from a place of wanting power uh, or to make somebody feel unsafe or to feel better if you're making somebody feel bad, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, I I think all of those, all of those things are true, and the biggest thing that I'm discovering because I will, if the people are comfortable sharing it, I will ask them, in what way was the abuse presented to you? Mm-hmm. Because I I really want to document all the ways that this happens so right. that we can get a discussion going. So if a kid listening 
you know, or the adult who had this happen to them as a kid is listening, they can go, that makes sense why I feel nauseous when mom comes into the bathroom. That's um, because a lot of moms abuse their access to their children's bodies to do things. And a lot of it, they intentionally keep just below the radar to keep the child fooled, but to fulfill their own sick sexual sexual needs that's that's one of the things i'm discovering and one of the things that i really want to go nationally globally and go talk about and it the feeling of meaning and purpose i get doing this podcast and comfort right finding other people who know what a mind fuck it is to go through this um it it makes it feel like this wasn't for naught Yes. It makes it feel like okay, this is this is your mission yes. in life, and and other to talk about other you know the mental illness, then the the depression, the anxiety, Absolutely. the social and sexual anorexia that can come from being a a, a sex abuse um, survivor. So it's not all bad, but there are certain days. It feels like a forced gym membership, and there are certain days when I just feel like. It, there's to just too out. much weight and right. I just my body is too sore and I just want to stay in bed but I think everybody has their version yeah of that. sure of course but this leads me to a couple questions or well one comment which is that you know and it's kind of a separate issue but the same that you listening to your show has made me very proactive with my son in talking to him about all of this very openly um to advocate for himself and to know when something feels wrong that it's wrong and to never be afraid to say no to an adult and all of that because there what kind of has occurred to me is that I have been in many situations in my life where these things could have occurred um older distant cousins that were you know very clearly flirtatious with me but nothing ever happened um you know i went on a date with a much older man when i was 16 and he parked his car in the middle of the street uh in on a very dark road and said uh we're gonna we're gonna make some stuff happen now whatever and how old was he he I, i think i was like 16 and he was like 23 24. That's a big difference. Yeah, that is. Yeah, that's a child and an adult. Absolutely. And, um, and I said, No, we're not turn your fucking car. (laughs) Um, And he listened to me because I think he could tell like I was gonna scream, I was gonna kick him in the balls, like there was no fucking way he was gonna get at me. So any Oh, there was another time where I was in the Catskills with my family and it was like... That's uh, your first mistake. (laughs) It was actually a fantastic week. But my parents were doing their own thing. My brother and I were doing our own thing. And I was at the pool by myself at 12. And a uh, a man... He was in college, but he was also probably 20. uh, Said, hey, I've seen you around. Would you want to come meet with me and my family? I said, I'd love to. And he goes, great. Just come up with me to my room. I'm going to change. And in the elevator, he discovered my age and was so freaked out and flustered and was so over the top trying not to be inappropriate. (laughs) So I look at my life and all of these near misses and nothing ever happened. And I think, well, what if that one time something did? Would that have changed me as a person and changed my brain chemistry? And is that where so much of this comes from? I I think there's a great chance it it would have changed something 
in you, you know, who knows how much, maybe slightly, maybe greatly. Right. Uh, I know that depression and alcoholism runs in my family. Right. My father was a depressed uh, person and uh, if... He was the he was the most responsible alcoholic I've ever met. In what respect? He always kept his job. Um, he wasn't verbally abusive. Uh, his his misdeeds were one of uh, isolating and not taking an active interest in his children's life, mm-hmm. which uh, certainly is its own kind of uh, abuse mm-hmm. and trauma. But I always enjoyed his company. I was often disappointed by um, his. D- inability to connect right um but he he was a he was a good man but i will occasionally feel rage uh that where was he how do you let your wife paw your child and do these other things um and and one of the other things that 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 my mom does is she says you know i think you might have been molested by your dad or another relative right deflects the blame yeah I never felt unsafe around my dad. One of my favorite memories of him was when he would carry me to to bed. And then um, my mom told me a couple of years ago that she, because of his drinking, she told him that he should stop having physical contact with me because she was afraid he was going to molest me. And it was... The one good thing that you have. <laughs> there were other good things, but I, you know, I remember my dad teaching us how to swim. My dad loved the pool. He loved water. And I, uh, some of my favorite memories are being on vacation mm-hmm. with, uh, with him and, um, watching sports mm. with him. But my dad was an alcoholic and I only saw him slur his words once. I was 25 years old. Wow. He kept vodka hidden around the house. Um, he, always had mints in his mouth mm-hmm. so i think that that helped and he could hold his his liquor um for the most part but uh you know when my dad died i i wanted to feel more than right. i did he died in 06 and i felt guilty that i didn't go see him more but i didn't really have a strong connection to my dad right. there there weren't there really was almost no bonding with what was a phone conversation with him like when you were older oh he couldn't stand to get on he couldn't stand yeah. being on the phone he was just so uncomfortable every once in a while you would get on a topic that he would enjoy talking about and and he would get into it but then it would just be like a door would close and he was just he was not a people person mm-hmm. he was not a people person and so okay this is a, a, an odd question but if if you were raised by a warm protective mother and a dad who hugged you and told you he loved you there would be no podcast <laughs> i know that you for believe sure that you would be a completely different person i, I think i would pro- probably still be an alcoholic or an addict of mm-hmm. some type because i i personally believe it's genetic yeah um but who knows you know the the prevailing theory on mental illness and i would file addiction as yes. a as a form of of mental illness um the prevailing theory on it is that the genetics are there but it's there's a switch mm-hmm. and environment can determine whether or not that switch gets flipped so um i don't know uh if there are alcoholics and addicts roaming around whose switches have never been flipped interesting um so i don't Do i you don't remember know. you at nine mm-hmm were were you happy? 
I had things that made me happy. I always had friends, at least until I got to high school, and then okay. I felt incredibly alienated because I went to a Catholic grade school, and all of my friends went to Catholic high school, and I had had it with uh, Catholicism, right. and I wanted to wear jeans. So I was right. like, so I went from being a popular. Weren't they ki- dungarees back then? <laughs> I'm just making sure. And we did gold mining on our lunch hour. Um, I went from being a, a popular kid in a class of 35 to being a kid with almost no friends in a class of 1300 and I was still the same size as I was in sixth grade and other kids my age were hitting puberty I wouldn't hit puberty for probably another two years wow so it was a brutal first first two years and that's when I discovered uh, weed and alcohol and in many ways they probably uh, saved my sanity delayed all the things that I would need to work out eventually right? Um, through support groups and sobriety. But um, I just remember getting high for the first time and thinking, oh, I found the answer. Wow. I found the answer. This is. And did that then dictate your group of friends? Yes. Yeah. Very much so. Very much so. Hmm. I think what I'm trying to get to the root of, and I guess there, there probably isn't an answer, is um you know, do you remember that switch getting turned on? And before that, you know, were you? I think I, I think that there was an instance where I think it was clear that my drinking was alcoholic. Was It was the 4th of July. I was 14 years old, maybe. Uh, maybe it was the summer after freshman year, I think. And there was a kid at our pool who looked old enough to buy liquor. Mm-hmm. And so... Everybody told him what they wanted, and I said, just get me whatever. And so he got me a bottle of Mad Dog 2020, which is fortified wine, oh which God. is incredibly powerful. And at this point, I was, you know, 4'10", 85 pounds, and I drank the whole thing in 15 minutes. Oh and and I, uh, I think that was definitely alcoholic mm-hmm. drinking. Um when I find something that takes me out of myself, I will run the wheels off it. You've seen all the oh. hobbies that I that I go through. Let's talk it's, about that because that's yeah. one of my questions. I would love to actually discuss that because since I've known you, um, so when I when we first met, you were you were still drinking. Yes. God, you were so much more fun. <laughs> Um, that's not that's not untrue. <laughs> no, it is untrue. It is yeah. untrue. I mean, look, it is untrue. If you caught me in the right part of my buzz. I was a pretty fun person to be to be around. Yeah, but you're that guy sober when I we catch you at the right part of your day. Do you know what maybe I mean? after right after I have caffeine or or things are are going well? No, I do have those. I do have those moments when I'm around my support groups and yeah. and uh, people that get me and I feel safe around. Right. Um. I and my depression's not there. I do have that. I do have that. But it was it would almost always be there for the ready when I would drink and use. The problem was the side effects of that right. is drinking until, you know, I was seeing double or, you know, then the mean part of the buzz coming right. out and, and not being a, a, a good husband to Carla, you right. know, being emotionally withdrawn and cold and cutting and right. all those other things that I, the, that I really regret. Wow. Um, all right, so let's. So the reason I said that when we first met, you were drinking, is because the first thing I remember you being obsessed with and really delving into was wine. 
Uh, you had this amazing wine collection. And I remember going out with you in Atlanta one night when we were doing um, dinner and a movie. And it was the whole group of us. And you you were doing like a blind taste test thing where you said to the waitress, just bring me bring me a wine, something you love, and don't tell me what it is. And I'm going to guess. Do you remember that? I think so. Oh, yeah. So, like, she brought you something. I was going to like, guess what kind of grape it was. Yes. Yeah. You're like, that's Malbec, and it's probably from this region, and da-da-da. And I think you were right, and everybody was like, oh, Paul, that's <laughs> so brilliant. And, you know, I didn't at all think that you had a problem. Uh, I hit it well. You hit it I very didn't drink well. during the day. I didn't drink on the job. Oh, God, no. You're such a pro and all of that. Um Certainly when you, later on, mm -hmm. I think I did see you drink to excess a few times. And then when you said that you were stopping, it wasn't like, at that point, I don't think that was a huge shock. But um, I think Carla was the only one, my wife Carla, I think was the only one that clearly knew I had a drinking problem. Right. Yeah. Right, because she would see you. She would at see all me, your you know, times. holding holding onto the walls, you know, guiding myself to to bed. Oh my god! At, at night. Yeah, I never saw that. Never saw that side of you. Um. So after the wine, well, because clearly you stopped drinking, and then you got and, rid of all and, the wine. And just to let you know how obsessive I was with the wine, I went from trying my first glass of good wine, in maybe it was two thousand two thousand and one, um, to. Maybe it was 99. I don't know. Right, somewhere around that time, within six months of going, oh, wine can be really good, I had a rented wine storage, oh humidity, temperature-controlled <gasps> thing with 24 cases of different wine, and I was reading books about the different areas of France. I was ordering stuff online. I was spending thousands of, of dollars um, at, at wine stores on... Uh, it, it was it was the distraction I think that I needed to not have to deal with all the stuff that I'd buried my, well, my whole life. Well, also wasn't part of it, do you think, part of it was also justification for drinking? Like, yes. I'm not an alcoholic, I'm a wine connoisseur. I'm, a, I'm, I'm not a bum, I'm classy. <laughs> right. But is that partially that? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And, and I am in constantly curious person about something if something piques my interest i want to know everything that i that i can about that right. and i i think i used to find more safety in that than i do now because for me um i didn't know how to be vulnerable so to be safe for me meant to be knowledgeable mm -hmm. that that for me i felt like i i will be okay navigating the world if i can be as smart as i can be and if i can be successful and recognized in my industry that will mean safety in the future. And mm -hmm. I, of course, found out what a dead end that is to depend on other people's opinion of you to feel safe in the world. Yes. And yet other people's opinions are still very important to you. Extremely important yeah. to me. And um, But yeah. that's an odd thing, isn't it? To know in your heart that that's so not important, but then to still based so much of your self-worth on that. And I'm not mm. blaming you, by the way. Nope. I'm a similar person. Well, not really, but I definitely care. Yeah. But... I think it. I think it's what we do with it. I think everybody probably feels, you know, a flash of shame come up if, if you know, if somebody rejects them yeah. or criticizes them yes. and we think they're, you know, they might be right. But I think it's what we do after that. How soon are we able to forgive ourselves? How soon are we able to say, okay, well, if, you know, a situation like that presents itself again, is there something I've learned from this that I can handle differently? Right. And I'm starting to get to the 
point now where I can forgive myself for my mistakes and say, well, I'm not that, you know, I'm going to learn from this or or I'm not that guy anymore, that thing that somebody just brought up that I did five years right. ago. Right, right. That's you know, hard. It is hard. That's and probably hard. one of the biggest things that I have trouble forgiving myself for is the way that I treated women for, for a long time was uh, I did what my mom did to me, you know, not, I didn't molest anybody, but I objectified, uh, women for so many years and viewed them, um, as I, I couldn't view them really as you know, there were a few women in my life like you and Janet mm -hmm. that I would let in and I would get vulnerable. But it was in many ways it was um, I didn't have any interest in knowing who the person was um, unless it was convenient, I guess. Right. And the way I talked about women, um, it the way I treated women that, that I dated in – in college, outside of the the one serious girlfriend I had, um, I just I'm ashamed. I'm ashamed of um, how hard I would badger them to have sex with me, and I know some probably felt violated. Wow! Uh, by it, and that that is probably the biggest regret that I have because doing this podcast, I've learned how many. Um, women had sex when they didn't want to mm -hmm. because they either wanted to please that person or they felt worn down by it or they couldn't find the words. Right. Maybe some of the women I had sex with were in a state of frozen disgust and I had no idea because I was hammered. Wow. And so that haunts me. To this day, and I think it's one of the reasons why I probably have difficulty um, taking in a compliment is because I think, um, but I hurt people. How can I be a good person if I hurt people? Right. Um, but I also say to myself, you're not the guy that you, you used, to, you be. used to be. And then one of my friends in the support group, I broke down one night and... Um, and I was crying, and she said, "But you're not that guy anymore." Right. And I was able to 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 take that in, but um, it's not easy to let that go. It's not easy to let that go at all. And and I also didn't want to portray myself on this podcast as somebody who is just purely a a victim. You know, I used to demean people with my sense of humor. Um, I I could be a real a real dick and I still can be incredibly inconsiderate in my marriage um, and I, I guess I want I want this to be a realistic picture of of who I am and, yeah. and what my and what my struggles are right um, but I'm, um, I'm what I worry sometimes that people think because I am an incest survivor that I've molested um, kids and oh, that bothers me Right, but you bothers me. but you haven't. No. And I don't believe that everyone that's been molested does. No, they they don't. Um but that's another one of the ignorant things that people think right. about it. Right. And, and I that's... think that's one of the reasons why it's hard to talk about sometimes is because 
I'm such a control freak. I want to try to prevent people from thinking things about me, whether they're true or not. Absolutely. Picturing me with a thermometer in my butt. Picturing me, am I, did I turn out to be like my mom? I have more of my mom's qualities in me than I would care uh, to admit. Mm -hmm. You know, I can be controlling. I can be uh, narcissistic. Um, I objectified uh, for years. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, well, but on, that's, on, that's again, I'm not making excuses for you and, 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 but, but you were, that's what you were modeled, you know? Yeah. And I, I mean, it's so interesting because again, it, it, it's, first of all, we live in a world and, and especially, you know, uh, 30 years ago even was different than it is now in terms of male sensitivity and not objectifying women. It was very much, you know, I always picture just Greece, you know, the movie Greece. It was a bunch of guys wanted to have sex with the girls and a bunch of girls, you know, using it as power or as, as, um, currency. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I think that for years that was the model. Women don't want to have sex. Men want to have too much sex. Sometimes they've got to, you know, beg for it to get it. So, you know, I just think it's so hard to navigate uh, when you're you're modeled certain things and you certainly didn't come from a family where you were taught how to love gracefully. So, you know, and again, I I understand you feeling remorse. for the things that you did, but you do have to realize that you're a different person now and that you have had to learn on your own support groups. That's really where, yeah. and, and the women in my support groups have helped raise me as much as the men, because I've heard their stories and the women uh, on this podcast and the men, uh, uh, listeners, the emails and the surveys that I read, because they've been so descriptive in their emotional life and the trauma that they've yeah. experienced, it it has educated me uh, so much um, as to the the nuanced areas of uh, sexuality and interpersonal relationships and trauma and you know all that right. all that stuff that's so complicated. Yeah. Um, all right, let's go back to your obsessions. Uh, uh, video games? Yeah, I'm currently uh, on the wagon. Oh! And not fe- oh, that's not true, because I've been playing a ton of words with friends in Scrabble. Eh, but eh, that's those, educational. Those are learning games. Yes. Um, <laughs> really? So you're not playing your... Civilization? Yeah. I haven't played in about three months, and oh. I haven't felt the desire. But Netflix, numbing out... Um, I don't know if that's the right word, uh, but I probably watch an average of you know, maybe five to seven, eh, five, sometimes ten documentaries a week on, wow. on Netflix. Um, I, but who cares? I, like, I really don't. No, because that's it's. You don't have kids. You don't have you know a daytime job. Why shouldn't it feels, you do that? It feels like self self-care to me i don't don't know if i'm kidding myself but i don't really if that's as bad as my addictions get uh i feel like it's a that that's a victory yes talk about woodworking because (sighs) you not only (laughs) spent i'm sorry to laugh but sometimes it's hard to not laugh at you um you spent 
was it safe to say a couple hundred thousand dollars? Oh on? God, no. Oh no, no, what no. Probably spend? about forty thousand dollars. Oh, on, oh, on oh, okay. I thought it was oh, way more than no, that. Okay. No. Okay. No, no. All right, but still, forty grand. Yes. It's a lot of freaking money. But I probably made uh, five hundred dollars worth of furniture. You know that. <laughs> so that's only I'm only in the whole three thirty nine thousand five hundred dollars. <laughs> okay, but now, first let me say that your st- the things you created are freaking gorgeous thank this you table we're sitting at now what is that a bookshelf uh, coffee table yeah these were the front tree remember that big front tree in our yard oh my god this is that this is that tree well everything all those things in your house those Thanks. lit boxes and the bench and i i mean literally everything you made is beautiful because that Thank was you. another thing that you delved into you learned everything about what kind of wood was the best and I couldn't stop thinking about it. It wasn't even a choice. It was, um, and, and I don't think it's a mistake that this was, um, between getting sober from drugs and alcohol and confronting what happened to oh. me. Uh, I think it was, okay, I'm here. I'm present. I've got energy. Uh, I'm not ready to deal with this other thing yet. I, I think it was totally subconscious, but, any interest I had during that time period. Remember, I went through the picture-taking phase, taking yes. the dog well, pictures. I and took, those were incredible. Thank you. They were. I took, in a year and a half, so many pictures of dogs that the camera, you know how the camera counts the numbers? Yes. It rolled over back to zero. So over 10,000 pictures oh, in a year and a half. Oh, my God. I, I feel like I had to do those things to... Um, as I look back now, I feel like I, I needed that distraction right. in my in my life. But I loved him. It wasn't like, uh, I mean, I would wake up in the morning and I would feel excited yeah. to go to the dog park, to get in the garage and make stuff. Well, so my question is, you go from being, that's it. That's all you talk about. That's all you do. You get so good at it that you're I, I just so accomplished and then all of a sudden you're done. The switch flips. So, and then there's zero desire ever to go back. What is that? Well, you know, one of the support groups that, that I go to, um, they say that when you're healing from uh, sexual trauma and abandonment issues and all of that, when you stop looking at pornography and other stuff, um, these feelings you've been bearing your whole life are going to come up and you're going to deal with them. You're going to feel them. And a, a lot of times, things that you, that used to give you, um, hobbies Comfort. that used to give you pleasure, um, that may go away. It may come back. It may not. Wow. And woodworking has come back and then it's gone away. And then it's mm-hmm. come back and it's gone away. So I think it's, I don't know if it means I'm still in the process of dealing with all this shit and it's going to come back one day or if the passion for it has gone but when i look at all the dusty machinery in my garage because i have to go in there to get my hockey equipment to go play hockey i always feel a certain sadness like god i wish i could feel that feeling again because it was it was such a great it was such a great feeling well and how bizarre too and i know it's hard for you to take a compliment but that you are so talented at those things. Like where I would look at your furniture and say, I think if you kept doing this, you could have a store and you could sell and you could be a, a true 
furniture designer, uh, just beautiful, mm-hmm. handmade, really expensive stuff. And when you were taking pictures, I thought, oh, my God, these are cards. Every one of them would sell or postcards or books or calendars or whatever. Um, well, you really are naive and ignorant. Then. I guess so. <laughs> no, but you, I, you have to be able to admit on some level that you were really talented am, at those I, things. I I did make some pieces that I'm extremely proud of that I feel like were kind of innovative and um, beautiful and organic and um, yes. And I, when people come over, I yeah. would show them. I'd say, right. look, look what I made, and I didn't feel embarrassed at all okay. that I was well, like, that's good. yeah. But then it's, it's just it's it's just not there. It's just not there. Um, yeah. I, wow. All right. I was just been very curious about that. That's interesting, though. That's good insight that it might be the in-between times before you're ready to I hope deal so. with something. And the weird thing is, is the only time I felt that passion come back as much is when I've experienced some hypomania um, in, not to be confused with Def Leppard's pyromania, <laughs> um, some hypomania uh, during the first month of being on a new med. Ah. And one of the listeners a- asked a question, um, it sounds like you sh- you have some of the qualities oh, yeah, of being bipolar. And I've talked to my psychiatrist about that, and he doesn't believe that I'm bipolar. He thinks I might be kind of right on the edge, and hypomania can be a common thing when you're Explain in the what first. Hypomania, hypomania is. is not full-blown mania, but it's uh, kind of a a state of you're just you feel invincible. Wow. Your brain is firing on all cylinders. You, you don't have a problem being around people. You're chatty. You're can't fucking wait to dive into a project you know you're you're doing this and that Mm. and when i've experienced that i get shit done yeah i'm in the garage i'm excited to woodwork um i'm making music um the the first month that i was on uh a med that i'm no longer on because it turned on me uh it was a med called abilify in the first month of that i bought a I bought a mandolin. I bought a new guitar. I was playing music six hours a day. Wow. The ideas were just coming. I was passionate about it. But there was also an aspect to it, which mania can have, which is you're not really present for other people. It's really mm-hmm. kind of about you, about you just gobbling up all this stuff that feels good to you. And so even when I was at the height of the woodworking thing, which wasn't med-driven, there was... It kind of a, a a manic quality to it because I would be out at dinner with Carla and I would she would be talking and I would be thinking, oh if now if I do a different joint on that oh, other thing wow. and I couldn't wait for dinner to wrap up so I could get back in there. That's not that's not healthy. That's, that's not healthy. Wild. Um, I'm going to ask you a couple more of my questions, but then I want to ask some questions that people send in and then maybe go back to some of my, I have so many questions for you. Um, oh, so one question I want to ask is, uh, you know, (laughs) in our, in our long friendship, there have been many times where we have come over to your house and where you just are done with the evening and all of a sudden you're in the other room watching TV (laughs) and the rest of us are having coffee and dessert in the kitchen. And I have never experienced that before. Uh, So it sounds like your dad was like that. Totally like that. So explain what happens. If you you subtract the part where he was around you to begin, where I was around (laughs) you to begin with, that was my dad. Start. Yeah. Okay. So tell me, like, what happens in your head? Where, like, I almost picture you as one of the people from Awakenings. (laughs) 
just you stop being a person. It's I have a finite amount of interpersonal energy, right. I guess. Um it's yeah, it's like all of a sudden uh there there is um there is a comfort to isolating that is at once awesome and at the same time terrible. Mm-hmm. And there are times when I just feel something in me turn and I just need to be by myself with my own thoughts playing on my iPad or watching a documentary because I, I f- just feel like the energy to be with people um, ran out. So the the complete... Um, and it has nothing to do with the people. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And by the way, I never took it that way. How I did take it in my very simplistic... Um, you know, rule following brain is, is it fair that Paul's, um, you know, what do do I say that your mental illness, your depression? Yeah. Okay. Is it fair that, that Paul's depression allows him to not have to follow the rules? That's, that's a great question. And, um, I don't know, I don't know the answer to that because it it is rude when when you've invited people over to all of a sudden. I mean, there was this time you guys were over, and you're the three of her, you you are talking, and I'm sitting in the recliner, and I pull a book out and start yeah. reading oh, yeah. it. And Carla was, was like, "Are you fucking kidding me? Are you reading a book?" And I didn't God. even understand oh, that there I was remember. anything wrong with it. Right. Right. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so I guess. And I okay. love the, one of the reasons why you guys are so easy to be around is that you can laugh at that. Oh, my and God. And not take and it openly. personally at, yes. and make fun of me. Yes. And yes. Well, I think that's genuinely one of the greatest things about our relationship is that there are no punches pulled. It is no. all out on the table. I would never let you get away with anything, nor would you me. But um, but at the same time, it's family. I just love you. And sure, he's going to, you know, you know, there are nights when we're there where I'm like, I can't believe Paul's still here. This is amazing. <laughs> this we must be very entertaining tonight. And I can't okay. tell you how excited I am when you guys, when we're able to spend Christmas Eve together, oh, when you guys best. are able to come over for Christmas we Eve. We were going to leave this year early. And then I was uh, like, we can't, we can't miss Christmas Eve. I appreciate it's it. It's so a part of our holiday season. Back to the um, the things like woodworking and, and photography and all that. Uh, Collected sports cards for a while, football and basketball cards. That was before I met you. That was okay. like 92 to 94, and okay. it was just obsessive. And then did obsessive. you end up selling your collection? Uh, I sold most of them, of course, at a huge loss. Right. Uh, and I still have some that that have gone down in value to their – I'd probably be – they would probably serve me best burning for fuel. <laughs> Uh, I collected guitars uh, for a while. At one point, I had about 20 guitars. Oh, my God. But then when we bought a house, it was like, uh, we need money to fix the house. And so I wound up selling. And I did make a little bit of money on on some of those. But uh, that was more obsession-driven than it was like, this is a financial investment. Right. Well, it sounds like most of the things were obsession-driven. Oh, my God. Domain names. When domain no. names, oh, you! I never told you about this. I don't know. Oh, you would know. You were buying up domain names. Oh my God, Lisa! Maybe I do remember you telling me this. When I found out <laughs> that I could buy domain names, 
I, in the span of six months, because, because I, I had this friend and she knew about search engines and stuff like that. And she said, the first thing that search engines looks for, look for, this is before Google, is the, the URL. And if somebody types in, you know, I'm looking for trains and you have the word train in your URL, right. that will come up first on the, on the search. The, the search site. Right. I'm, I'm making this way more basic than how she explained it right. to me. But so I was like, oh, this is the wild, wild west of real estate. And she's like, yeah, in many ways it is. I had no idea search engines would change and then it would be come an algorithm that Google did that is right. much more uh, logical. So at $70 a pop, I sat down oh my on my laptop on the road after my comedy gigs really over the stretch of like two weeks and spent $35,000 no. buying domain names. And this was not money I necessarily had. I slightly went into into debt to do this. Oh, and God. I have almost none of them to this day because they were all worthless. Some oh. of the most ridiculous. It was so compulsive. Um, and maybe that was a state of mania. I don't know because I was still drinking back then. Uh but it was, and then when I would pull that list out and look at it, when oh I realized how useless they were and I could see my craziness, it I would almost get sick to my stomach, but the part of me would also kind of laugh. Oh, like, I, this is, this is awfulsome. This is, <laughs> right, you know, the word right. we use. Yeah, this is, which I love. This is awfulsome. Uh, oh, you know, some God. of the, some of the domain names, oldpeoplefucking.net. No. I would get .com and .net. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, oh, I would think of something that people would want and, and and I would go, oh, I've got to get the domain name for that. And it was just um, the only one, the only two that I think were good was darkcomedy.com and singlemaltscotch.com. And you sold I those? Think, I still have singlemaltscotch and I don't know if I sold dark comedy or not. I might still have that one. But of four or five hundred names, oh. that's all I my God. And and my credit card would keep, would start denying it because they're like, oh, something's wrong. Right. This is 400 purchases <gasps> of $70 a pop in a week and a half. And I would have to keep calling him and saying, no, I know what I'm doing. Oh, my God. Maybe I am bipolar. And then you were, you were with Carla at the time. Yeah. And she's it- so forgiving. She was like, okay, if you say this is going to make money. But don't you think maybe this is a little excessive? And then, of course, I would get resentful. She doesn't understand. This is the Wild West. Wow. Oh, I'm crazy. I'm crazy. I'm starting to think she's crazy. For being with me? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, um, so assure your listeners, or or don't if, if, uh, if it's not the case, but is this podcast another no. obsession? No. This no. is something that you, why is it not? Because there are times, um, because I don't, while I think about ways to improve it all the time, Mm -hmm. it's not something that I feel a compulsion to do. It's something I feel um, like it's a work of love, not a work of obsession. So do you feel that more because it's something that you're sharing with uh, the public 
Mm -hmm. Um, and it kind of is a public service in a way, as well as entertainment and, Mm -hmm. and education and all of that. Do you feel that that makes it different? The fact that you're not keeping it to yourself? Yeah. You know, I, I, I kind of feel like it's like, um, in many ways, like my comedy career, uh, there's times that I need to have less of it. And there's other times where I'm feeling super inspired and, um, you know, let's go look at the surveys. Let's see what people Mm. have shared. And then there's like, I don't think I can put any surveys on this week because I just can't bring myself to to read um, more trauma or struggles or whatever, which is why I'm so grateful for the happy moments and the awfulsome moment surveys, because I never get tired of reading those. But sometimes the shame and secret surveys or the other ones, I'll be like, I don't know if I can, if, if I can do much of that do much of that today but i don't the the podcast has never felt obsessive to me in the beginning the shame and secret survey was a little bit obsessive because i was learning about people's inner lives their sexual fantasies um their traumas and there was a part of me that still felt like that little boy on the stairs like a monster Mm. and i wanted to be comforted i wanted to know other people had done stuff that was that was weird right had experienced stuff that was in a gray area um and and i did right i did find a ton of it and as i found more of that i became that part of me settled in and it became um not an addictive thing wow but it was addictive especially the inner lives of of women um it because I think I had a burning desire in my mind that I'm going to find out why my mom did what she did to me. I'm going to find out what was going on in her mind. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, I will never know how conscious it was right? and why she did it. Um, And who knows if that would even be helpful. it, It really wouldn't. And one of the things I preach on this show is separate that. Separate whether something is prosecutable. Separate whether somebody intended it or not. Separate all those things right. from your feelings right. and process your feelings and talk about how it affected you. Right. Yeah, because it's completely separate things. But it's an obsession for, I think, every survivor to want to know were the good things. Was that you just grooming me? Oh, so you God. could do the other things and right. it, it can't help. But the ripples of experience, sexual uh trauma and violation and being sec even just being sexualized by a parent mm-hmm. um the ripples are so far reaching and that's another thing I feel a mission of mine to go talk about because people don't understand that have never experienced it that really the worst parts of it the are the ripples much more than the event. Mm-hmm. The event, we often almost felt dispassionate and numb about when it happened. Yeah, we may cry about it later, but it's the shit that fucks with us because of that. Right. The not feeling safe, the not wanting to be around people, the being triggered by a perfume or a smell or a sound. Um, I was just looking at my wife's bra on the on the floor today and i thought why have i always hated 
the sight of bras. Why do they, why do they always, and then I remember that my mom sometimes would change with her door open, uh, n- never naked, right. but a lot of times in her bra and a, and a slip. And sometimes I would have to go in there and she would ask me to come in there and zip her up. And is it maybe from that? Is it a trigger from that? Right. But I've always found something about, um, the bra to the creep me out right. uh, a little bit um, like the opposite of sexy right uh, to me and maybe right. it's just they're making shitty bras it's I, I don't that. know i think it's probably that but no, i don't I feel that way about a bathing suit but something right. about the the i'm sure that that that's got to be some bad memory for you yeah. and you know some are big some are small going into a doctor's office it can be really triggering for me uh i have uh, Just so you know, when you said some are big, some are small, I thought we were still talking about bras. <laughs> I was like, what does that have to do with that's anything? Obvious. <laughs> that's obvious. You know, going no, but, to doctor's offices are incredibly triggering. Uh, because me. of that incident? And and other ones. Um, you know, there was many uh, doctor's offices where they were, their bedside manner was just fucking horrible. And I was treated oh like a piece God. of meat. And it had to do with my genitals. And I was ashamed. And, um, you know, it's... But that, that, those are the things that I want to go around the country and around the world and speak about or even just spread through the podcast so that people can go, oh, okay, I'm not just making it up that I'm freaked out being in an ice cream store because the uncle that used to molest me would always right. take me for ice cream afterwards. Right. This is a thing. This is a real thing. It's. It, I'm not a baby for having a panic attack in, a, in an ice cream store. Right. So is there a danger of, and again, I hope I'm never insulting anyone out there who has any of these issues. This is again coming from a person who genuinely um, you know, is curious about the way your your brain functions mm-hmm. is there a danger of using depression as an excuse that's a great it's a really brave question for you to ask because i ask myself that all the time and i don't know mm-hmm. if i can know sometimes what is a character defect of mine of being irresponsible mm-hmm. or what is my depression making it impossible or near impossible for me to, to, to do something. Okay. Um, so I don't know the answer to that, but I know that if that answer is not, if that question is asked in the wrong tone or the wrong time, to the wrong person it can be extremely hurtful oh, and I, really set them I really set imagine. them back um i i tend to think of depression as a lack of vigor and vitality um more than sadness i don't experience mine as sadness i experience it as flatness and a way of viewing the world as what does it fucking matter look at that person crossing the street where are they going it doesn't fucking matter so they're going to go buy a new shirt they're going to be dead anyways wow why you know what does it matter what i'm when i'm going to eat i'm just going to shit it out you know why not just lay in bed none of this fucking matters that's when I'm in that place, I don't believe that it's 
laziness, but sometimes I do shirk my responsibilities. And maybe mm-hmm. sometimes I do say, well, I'm not feeling well. So interesting. Maybe I, maybe I do use it sometimes, but I like to think the bulk of the time I'm not using it because when I'm feeling vigorous, I'm pretty responsible. Right. I get shit done. And, um, I don't read magazines when my friends are over. Right. <laughs> so maybe my friends need to be more fucking interesting yeah, well, and I won't please, go to the magazine. That's, that's clear. Yeah. Um, what's so interesting about what you just said to me, that whole, like, what the fuck does it matter? She's going to buy a new shirt. She's just going to die eventually. And, and why eat this food? I'm just going to shit it out. What's so fascinating about that to me is if you say that in a different tone of voice, you are describing happiness. Say that again. If I, if, if let's say I just want to, uh, God, how do I explain this? Imagine saying that in a different tone. Mm-hmm. Where's that woman going? She's just going to buy a shirt, and then one day she's just going to die. Why is she even buying a shirt? Why is that happiness? Meaning it's like, fuck it. Let's yeah. all just do whatever we want because we're all going to die. So right now should just be joyous. Who cares yes. if we go for Mexican yes. food or Mediterranean food? Yes. We're just going to shit it out. So let's just go have whatever we're in the I mood see. for. I see. Do you know what I mean? Yes. So it's, if you remove joyous from it, that's the same attitude as somebody who's a free spirit. A free spirit. Yes. Correct. It's such a fine line. So take vitality out of being a free spirit. And right. That's, and that's depression. And that's depression. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. That just hit me in a weird way that might not yeah. make sense to anybody No, else. I think it does. That I, I, had never occurred to me. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. So, um, someone wants to know, will you ever have your wife on as a guest to talk about living with the person dealing with depression? so many people have, have yes. asked me that question right. and she, you know, Carla, yeah. at, she can't stand the sound of her voice. She can't stand to be in pictures. Right. She would never, you could offer her a million dollars and I don't think she would, she would be interviewed by anybody about anything. And, right. um, is it something that if she would say yes, which we know she wouldn't, would you want to? Yes. You would? Yeah, I would. What do you think? And I know this is putting words in her mouth, but what do you think it's like living with you? Oh, hard. Yeah. I know she tells me sometimes that she's just, uh, that it's hard because, I mean, this last weekend is a perfect example. She she cleaned, she went to the grocery store, um, did a half dozen other things around the house. I slept till two o'clock. Um, I was back in bed at four. Um, I accomplished almost nothing around the house. And I was kind of inconsiderate of, um, I can't remember exactly the, the details of it, but it was just, uh, it was just one of those days when, it was just hard to be my my partner, right. and I think she has a lot of those. And she'll voice that to you. She will, and, and she won't. She won't shame me. She'll just let me know what she's feeling. Ah, that's and a hard thing to do. Is huge. Yeah, because it doesn't put me on the defensive. Mm-hmm. It allows me to know what she's feeling, and that is a result of us both going to therapy and going to counseling mm-hmm. together. But. The first 15 years of our marriage, maybe, um, it, we did not communicate. It was an argument and one person's going to win. Right. And that's no way to have intimacy with somebody if 
you're trying to be a winner and make them a loser. Right. And then you're going to want to feel safe with that person in bed. Right. That's crazy. Was there ever a time you guys wanted kids? Ever? No. Not ever for a minute? No. I think I've always known that I would be like my dad. Mm, that wow. I would the kid would be crying in the crib and I'd be like, well, let me just finish this article in my magazine. Mm-hmm. But there's also a part of me that thinks I would be a good dad. But I would hate to roll the dice yeah. and find out, oh, wrong. Right. But I don't, I just never find myself going, God, I just want to be around kids more. Right. I just never do. But when I see moments that you have with your son um, and the joy oh. that you guys have, the laughter and how safe he feels, mm-hmm. um, I think boy, it would be nice to bring a child into this world and provide safety for right. them and guide them in pursuing whatever their own, you know, thing is. Yeah. And to... And what about Carla? Do you think she ever... No. Not at all? No. She's not a, a very... She's maternal towards dogs. We're both... Um, our parenting instincts are intensely oh yeah they around on all cylinders around our dogs yes. but that is i think that's the most responsibility that we can handle and yet she's so good with with my son yeah. i mean she lights up around him and she uh i think it's the perfect amount for her she yes. loves buying him gifts yes yeah. well it's funny too when i was pregnant well, and, and to yes. be fair he's a well-behaved yes kid that that's pleasant to be around because she is not just like oh i love all kids oh, There's, no. she, she'll look at me sometimes and go i need my fucking tubes tied yeah just on <laughs> the off chance safe yeah. right well you know before i had a kid i was not a big fan of kids either just so you know never uh really enjoyed being around them i do now um oh god dang what was i just gonna say oh i remember being pregnant and carla said to me <laughs> <laughs> uh she goes don't ever fucking be one of those people that says you know charlie just learned something on the piano you have to see him play it or you know dance for carla she goes i swear to god i will leave the fucking room and i go carla i think you know i will never be that person and yet garrett will say to her you should see the ball i hit today and she'll go oh is it on tape yeah. uh, and then she'll but that's watch. different because it's him yes, doing it totally totally and your kid has a great fucking arm. Yes, he does. He can throw a football like a kid five years older than him. He's a badass. And he's going to be tall. Yeah, he's going to be very tall. But I really, really want him to stop playing football. Um, okay. Uh, I don't know what this is, so I'm going to ask you because I think you'll be educating some people. There was a, this is from, should I say the name of the person that sent it? You can. This is from a listener named Russ. There was a period of time where you were mentioning EMDR often. Did it help you? EMDR did help me. What is EMDR? uh, Eye movement desensitization reprocessing. And it's a way of moving your eyes that helps you reprocess the way trauma got wired into your brain. Oh, oh, yes. Okay. And I also did a thing called uh, transcranial magnetic stimulation, which is a way to... um, Improve the circulation in a certain part of your brain by sending electronic uh, or magnetic pulses uh, into your into your brain, and I did that, and it did not work for me. And my psychiatrist uh, told me that I should have checked with him first because oh. it 
does not have good success rates with people who have treatment resistant depression which is which is what he calls mine treatment resistant depression due to childhood adversity that's what he calls it and treatment resistant means that medication does not help you it's a hit and miss and it comes okay. and goes okay but emdr you found helpful i did find helpful um it it helped me uh, i felt stuff leave my body when i did emdr oh i felt um I remember playing hockey the day after one session and I felt like the tin man had just been oiled. My joints felt differently. Oh my, my muscles God. felt more relaxed. I had more energy. And after that one particular session that I did, I slept almost constantly for two days. Uh, just Not like I don't want to face the world no, sleep, like, like I'm sleep. fucking exhausted. Yeah, in fact, I remember I did a podcast and I, uh, I was doing the intros and outros of the podcast the day after I had it done, and I was still struggling to keep my eyes open. Wow. Yeah. Would that's you ever supposed do it to be again? Really, I would. I would. I felt like we were getting uh, diminishing results, so that's why I stopped mm -hmm. going. But uh, I'm a believer in it. Um, mm -hmm. I think the the results are mixed for people that do it, but um, a lot of trauma, sur trauma survivors uh, have experienced uh, tremendous help from it. Uh, wow. One of our guests, Lauren Ashley Bishop, uh, had profound results. She experienced a lot of sexual trauma in her life, and um, she experienced profound healing from EMDR. That's incredible. Yeah, and uh, people returning from war, war vets, any kind of PTSD, I think it's worth giving a shot. But um, it, the person who does it needs to be experienced, because I think if you rush right in with the heaviest thing they ever experienced, it can, it can not be good. Okay. So you're supposed to, from what I understand, you're right. supposed to kind of start with something that was mildly traumatic. And then next week, you know, talk about an event that was maybe slightly more uh, traumatic. So you're talking about the event what? and doing the... And your eyes are following something. Or you've got a paddle, an electronic paddle in each hand, and it's one, they alternately buzz. Oh so it's something God. about the different sides of your body receiving stimuli alternating that helps rewire do you just want to try that and i'll keep slapping a different cheek uh, while you're talking i'm not opposed to it all right can i read a magazine right while i do it totally <laughs> um nicole says what tools do you use to break that cycle when you are going into a depression to interrupt the destructive negative thoughts what are your anchors and what helps you to keep doing them even when you default impulse when your default impulse is to crawl into bed and disappear do you have to make myself tools? shower oh. uh, to get out of the house? Um, so you do force yourself to do those things? Yes. Um, they're not that hard now because they're a part of my routine. Mm -hmm. um, is a routine important then, do you think, for people with it depression? Is. I think it's extremely important. I think getting out of the house and being around people is, mm -hmm. is extremely important. Even though sometimes that must just be the most exhausting thought. Well, for me, the place that I go to get coffee at I love so much mm -hmm. and I love caffeine um, that it's I can't wait to get there. So I pray and meditate in the morning. And that's one of the things that I do that I often don't want to do uh, because I just want to get to the caffeine in the comfy chair and right. check in my email and reading the surveys and, you know, all, all the other stuff. Right. Um, so exercise, trying to trying to eat right. Um 
going to my support group meetings, uh, sharing with people, not keeping it all bottled up inside, uh, trying to get something accomplished during the day, mm-hmm. um, because that does help elevate my mood. With the, It helps ease that voice in my head that tells me um, I'm lazy right? and I'm throwing my life away. All the mean things that, that my brain tells me. So th- those are the Sometimes big Sometimes that's me whispering in your <laughs> Those are the big ones that, right. that I, uh, I rely on. And, and having hobbies that bring me pleasure, like, like hockey. And the endorphins from exercising really, really help. How often are you playing hockey now? Uh, two, three times a week and then going to the gym uh, two, two, three times uh, a week. But the gym's not very uh, intense, it's, it's, but I, I like it. And uh, the person that uh, helps me at the gym, the trainer, um, she's very much like me, had a lot of similar uh, issues. And um, so it can be very almost like therapy on certain days. You know, she'd tell me about a date she went on on the weekend and she's going to see this guy again. And I'll tell her about, you know, a podcast guest I had or a letter I got from my mom. So it's it makes going to the gym palatable because I fucking hate going to the gym. I think most people do. And by the way, thank you for doing this so late. Um, (laughs) We started at 930 at night. And Lisa, what time did you get up this morning? I uh, well, it wasn't too bad. Six forty. Oh my god, you must be so tired right now. I'm a little tired, but my husband's taking our son to school in okay. the morning, and I've already made his lunch. And it means so much to me that you wanted to do this. Oh, so badly. Are you okay? And, Are you happy with the way it's going? Yes. You are. I'm the center of attention, Lisa. That's How true. Can that... That's it's... true. <laughs> um, you're so welcome. It's such a pleasure for me. I think you know mm-hmm. that. Um, I was going to ask you, how often are you still going to, uh, support groups? Three times a week. You still go three times a oh, week. Yeah. Do you still speak at, at prisons and mm-hmm. you're still doing that? Mm-hmm. When we first met, you were delivering meals to people. Mm-hmm. You still doing that stuff? No, they, they folded. Oh uh, yeah. Yeah. It was a, a thing called project angel food. Okay. And, um, it started out with bringing meals to people that had AIDS. Right. And then as the uh, uh, medicines got better, people got healthier. So then they extended it to people who were homebound. And then they just found that they were, they just didn't need this, this thing as much. So I think it got folded into some other organization. Um, But yeah, they just kind of disbanded it. Well, the reason I ask is because I remember you always saying that one of the things that helps you so much uh, that you didn't mention just now was uh, helping other people, getting outside of yourself. Huge. It's probably been the, if anything has saved my life, um, I I think it's that. And in the support groups, there's a thousand different ways for that to happen. It could be, you know, taking somebody under your wing that's new. It could be setting up chairs. It could be. Occasionally going into a a prison and saying, hey, here's how I'm living my life today. You don't have to keep, you know, um, shooting heroin or drinking or committing crimes or, you know, whatever it is that you're doing that keeps making you come back here. Do you think that makes a difference to those people when you go do that? I do. Uh, Some of them, I think they just want to get out of their uh, dorm to uh, sit in a different chair and see their buddy who's in the dorm next door. Sure. Um, But... I have bumped into people that got out of jail and remember 
me going in there and talking to them and they thanked me and after the first person did that i was like even if it was just that one person that made it feel all worthwhile but the feeling huge the feeling i get when i come home from it is is one of peace and relaxation um and so you know i would i get something out of it right sure you know what i mean it's ultimately it's kind of a selfish thing to do it's just a win it happens to be a win-win right if i didn't get that feeling from doing it i don't think i'd do it so don't don't think like i'm this no, this I, guy that's I like, I must saying. make the world better today. But no, but it's, Paul, here's the thing. Any time anyone does something altruistic, it feels really good. It does. So it doesn't, it still makes that thing yeah. you did mm-hmm. great. All right. Um, there are people asking what was your uh, college years like in your 20s and 30s. Those are very broad questions. I don't know if you have anything specific that you, I mean, you shared some stuff about your mm-hmm. college years that bother you Uh, i remember feeling uh a lot of even though i was around friends in college there was an emptiness and a loneliness that i think i tried to feel fill with alcohol and uh sex Mm -hmm. um which probably isn't that unusual for a 20 year old guy um and i got into a serious relationship in my senior year of uh of college and that was the first time i felt love that was the first time i felt uh, her name was becky and um she really saw me Mm -hmm. she really um i felt special i felt um it was more than just sex right for me um but I think ultimately, I wasn't emotionally mature enough to give her what she needed, and she broke up with me, and I was heartbroken. How long did it last? A mm, year and a half, maybe. Wow. And um, yeah, it, that was that was super painful. And I knew here's how I knew something was emotionally fucked up in me was she broke up with me, and it was over the summer, and. She was coming, I was there for summer school, and she came down for some reason, it wasn't to see me, but she called me up and she wanted uh, me to come to her hotel room. Okay. And and I went and she wanted to have sex. So she had broken up with me already, but she wanted to have sex again. Oh, wow. And it was the most powerful sex to me that at that point in my life that I had ever had and I think it was because somebody didn't want me was having sex with me. Uh-huh. And I remember feeling my heart connected. It, I thought it was my heart feeling connected, right. but it was tapping into obviously some deep abandonment issue right. that I felt um, that I couldn't recognize at the time. But I remember thinking, "You're why is this now more than... Why is this so intense to right. you now? Right. And I just remember making a mental note of that. Like someday maybe I'll find out why why this is so erotic to you with this person. Although I will say not to at all diminish where that was possibly coming from, but 
breakup sex, I think, in general is that it Mm. is like this because I think there's a mixture of this is the last time, Mm -hmm. most likely. And it's it's uh, kind of bad because we're not in a relationship. And I do think it brings up a lot of, you know, naughtiness and and. you know, you get that feeling back of we're not supposed to be doing this. It's like the first time again type of thing. And then it's also most likely the last time. So I think it was the closest, I think, at that point that I'd ever felt what I thought other people described as love. Wow. Oh, that time was? That time. Really? Yes, that's what was weird. So you hadn't realized that you felt that way? I'd never felt that way before. And and it felt like what I imagined love would feel like. Wow. Wow. But what was the previous year and a half? The numb me uh-huh. feeling as much of love as I as I could, but oh always God. feeling like a part of me was missing. And I never realized it was probably related to the stuff that had happened to me as a kid that right. I had to I had to cordon off that part of myself to keep myself safe. Okay. That I couldn't be completely vulnerable, but um but it was more than just sex with with her right but i was still kind of a college guy who could be inconsiderate and objectifying right. and uh, you know but so then after that last time was that it that was it I and think. then were you heartbroken all over again i think so yeah Ugh. and then anything uh from your when did you how old were you when you got married 30 Three? Oh, okay. 32. So what was it like between college and marriage? Um, I, Carla and I got together uh, in 87, and I left college in 86. Okay. I, I went five years to oh, college. Oh, okay. So um, there was a year of, uh, you know, fucking around. And, right. and college was a lot of, after we broke up, um, there was a lot of um, sport fucking uh-huh. In college, because I was in the theater department, and I was one of uh, maybe three straight guys. Right. And theater girls are very free-spirited. Yes. And so, you know, we'd all go skinny dipping. We'd all go hot tubbing naked, and I thought I died and went to fucking heaven. Oh, my God. But after I got out of college, um, I was very insecure about my future. You know, I've got a theater degree, which is almost useless. <laughs> Let's call it useless. It is. And... Um, I don't know, and I'm not really getting much theater work. Um, I didn't get into Second City, even though I went through their training program. I didn't get invited to be in the troupe. Mm-hmm. I wanted to do stand-up, but I was too afraid to go on stage alone. And so there was a part of me that even though I was fucking around, there was a part of me that desperately wanted um, a partner. I right. wanted. I desperately wanted... But I also have this fear of intimacy, so it's it was this double-edged sword of, um, please save me, but don't get close to me. Wow. And can you show me your vagina? Sure. You know, no, not you, but... Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. Thank you. No, I wasn't saying sure as if yes, I can. That would be a first for the show. Oh, my God. That is hilarious. Um, so... When I met Carla, uh, there was an instant um, – I didn't feel about her the way I I felt about 
other women. It wasn't like a... We bonded over dogs. Oh, that's And that's kind of when I knew on our first date. Um, we just... There was a palpable love of dogs about her. And when she came to my apartment... Um, she said that one of the things that she liked about me was I had uh, Martin Luther King's uh, speech uh-huh. uh, on on the wall. Almost fucking it up were pictures of myself in plays. And she was like, that is so gross. That is so gross. So Martin Luther King probably saved more than just black people. <laughs> that is hysterical yeah and she eventually there were so many things that she gently helped me kind of see were arrested adolescence Uh uh-huh things that i needed to let go of you know letting my mom buy me things you know having my family uh, going on vacation with my family and having them pay for all of it even though deep down she knew i i didn't want to be around my mom and I and I think I told you when when all of the that shit came up yes three years ago and I just started sobbing and saying my mom tricked me she used me I was a good boy I didn't deserve it the first thing Carla said was I've been waiting 20 years for you to say this and I go back to that all the time she's been a great advocate for me in in terms of taking care of myself and not giving a shit what if somebody else's feelings gets hurt, it's right. about you need to protect yourself. This person is unsafe, but no child wants to cut a tie with their parent if at all possible. There's Absolutely. some other way to work around right. it. And so we often blame ourselves. But she, she, there, there's many things that, that, that she has helped me with. And, and I'd like to think vice versa, too. Well, I was going know. to ask, what can you name a couple of things that you think you, you have done for her in those respects? Um, I I think um, by me going to therapy, it was an example for her, because I went to therapy when I was 24, mm-hmm. um, 25. We, you know, we'd only been together maybe a year, and I was just such an angry person. I ne- knew I needed help, and I right. think she saw that it was changing me, and so she started to, to go to therapy. Um I think um I I think I was maybe the first one of us to um start to be diplomatic during disagreements. Mm. I could be wrong about that, but I think I think I I was um so I think So do you guys argue completely differently now oh, than you used to? Completely differently. Uh maybe once every 3 years one of us will raise our voice and maybe it's me right it, it, generally it will be me um rarely is one of us mad at the other for more than 15 minutes wow um and things are talked about uh yeah sometimes they're buried because we may not be able to to voice it um the comfort that i wanted when the mom stuff came up wasn't what I wanted. I wanted more of it, and I wasn't oh. able to ask for it. Mm-hmm. And I felt tremendous anger at her for a while. But um, it's she had her own reasons for um, being upset with me about something else that had happened right. with us. And so I understand now that um, we were both kind of failing each other. But 
by going to counseling, we've been able to say, I'm sorry that I failed you in this way. I'm sorry that I failed you in that way. And um, so it's, and I hate going to th- counseling every time we go, but every time I leave, I, I think there there was something valuable. There was something valuable That's incredible. in that. Yeah. Um, and she has helped me more than anybody else to laugh at myself. Oh, I take myself seriously, but it was, uh, I was sickly so serious and intense about everything oh and could not laugh God. at myself. Could not laugh at myself. It hurt. Oh, God. To laugh at myself. Well, that was way before we were friends, right? Yes. Because I don't yeah. think you cannot, and I could have been friends if yeah. that was still you. Um. So Kelly Quinn Baker says, I hope, do you know who I this grew up with is? Kelly. Okay. She says, I hope that you're happy with your life now. Clearly she hasn't been listening to the <laughs> podcast. Good luck with the interview. It must feel good to be able to be so open and honest about your personal life. I'm proud to have been your friend so very long ago. I guess my question would be, do you have any regrets in revealing private experiences? I I have flashes of regrets, but overall, I, I don't have any regret about anything that, that I've... um shared That's on, the, on the podcast um, because every single thing that I've shared, I have gotten one or sometimes an avalanche of emails from people who are going through that same thing and it helped either comfort them or helped crack something open in them and and many of them are now in therapy as a result oh and making gosh. progress and that is one of the greatest feelings in the world. It It is endlessly comforting to me. The all the emails I got from people after the episode, um, you know, where I talked about the letter that I right. got from my mom, I'm still getting them coming in, and and they're so comforting to me because I need comfort. I'm yeah. a deeply um, insecure person that is afraid of making mistakes, right? And um, it helps me. It helps me, and I have very fond memories of of Kelly. Aww. Um, oh, this is a great question, actually, uh, from Ali Sue. Are you now able to make a living from doing the podcast? Uh, yes. Um, but it's, it's hit or miss because, uh, it's really donations. Um, advertising comes and goes. Mm -hmm. So it's, uh, it's kind of a bare bones. Right thing and there's so many ways I want to expand the podcast I want to look at trying to make it a non-profit and get some financial um, angels mm-hmm. so I can do a lot of things that I that I want to do the ways I want to expand the podcast and to pay myself and to maybe be able to put money away for retirement I mean as it is right now I will never be able to retire at least that I might for the foreseeable future, I, right. I don't, I don't see that happening, and I'd like to be able to. Is there any it. guilt attached to monetizing the podcast? There was in the beginning, but um, it's it's all I want to do. It's right. the there's no other. I, I could care less about the things that I used to do. I'm relieved to not go on auditions anymore. You know, I like to say that I have a relationship with show business. They don't show an interest in me, and I won't show an interest in them. And we've both kept up our end of the bargain. <laughs> Uh, do you think if you would have pursued things more aggressively, that would have been different? Possibly. 
Um, but I just couldn't fake the passion in it. I yeah. think there's a part of me, uh, the first year of Dinner in a Movie, I think I realized this isn't what I thought it would be. There was great aspects to it. Yeah. But I just don't really like the pressure of being on camera and not being in control of the creativity. It's awful. It really is awful on so many levels. Um, but speaking of uh, this, uh, Deborah D. Lattimore, what a cool name, says um, that she'd like to know if there's anything your listeners can do to thank you for everything you do. What would be most helpful? Financial subscriptions, help with transcription, mm-hmm. uh, email you with thanks, send you comfort, and then the rest, unfortunately, is cut off. Any any of those that you feel that they feel they Which can you do. say a lot. You say that yeah. you really appreciate the subscribers and, and the monthly uh, givers or the one-time givers, but that you also love the emails or, yes. yeah, just if people would review the podcast. Yes, on iTunes, give right. it a good rating. That that helps spread the word through social media. All those are ways. And, you know, you don't have to have money uh, to, to, to thank me. Of course, it's greatly appreciated. Right. Um, and but. they could also go um, through your podcast to Amazon. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's right. And uh, if you're going to buy something at Amazon, enter through our search portal. And if you buy something, they give us um, a little piece of it. And right. that doesn't make what you buy any more expensive. That's awesome. Um, uh, where I can't find this question, but I saw it earlier. Uh, someone wanted to know if there was ever a time where you had to cancel an interview because you just couldn't. Yes. Oh, really? Yeah, and and recently. Oh, wow. And um, it was but many to times, what? many times. Uh just feeling overwhelmed by my life, um feeling um like I just cuz it takes a lot of focus to be present with somebody oh, when yeah. they're sharing heavy shit. And um if I'm feeling uh too depressed or too um I don't know what the word is. Not up for it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, I feel like I shouldn't waste this person's time and I shouldn't put myself through something that I don't want to do at that, at that time. And when you cancel with that person, are you honest with the reason? Yeah. I say, uh, you know, I'm just feeling a little overwhelmed right now or I'm, you know, I'm backed up. I'm pretty backed up on episodes I've recorded that I haven't aired. I have almost a year of episodes that I've recorded that haven't aired. Some which, some which will air, some which may not. Right. Um, because there, there's a lot of hit and miss interviews and it's not that that person doesn't have an interesting story or they're not a great person or, um, it's you know to listen to somebody for an hour and a half you know there needs to be um some chemistry between myself and and them in terms of conversation flow and articulation of what it is right and sometimes it's just it's just not there right or it wasn't there on that day for that person or it's something that we've covered so many times that it's kind of gone to the back of the line and maybe it will air 5 years from now right and I oh, and I warn have, every person before I record them that this is that the might, case that it might not air. Did you tell it, yourself before this that <laughs> this might not work out for you? Um, Gwen Brunel wants to know if there are any books that have helped you on your journey. Silently Seduced is probably the most important book I've ever read. Outside of the books in my support groups. Mm-hmm. Um, Silently seduced really helped break a lot of stuff open um, for me. Any it, it explains covert incest, emotional incest, um, 
and the damage that it can do. And it it was my story. Um, wow. When I, I read the back of the book and started laughing out loud at how much it described me and oh, my relationship my with my my mom and and my dad my dad wasn't covertly incestuous but but when uh one parent disappears oftentimes the other the, the other parent will look to a child to fulfill their emotional needs mm-hmm. and that is one of the things that that happened to me that i think kind of screwed up my ability to trust and be intimate and look at women in a in a way that um was three dimensional I'm just writing down to have uh, my husband stop traveling for work. <laughs> make sure things are okay. Um, I don't know if you want to answer this or if this is a, I, this I'm sure will ring a bell to you from Rebecca Yael Shim. You once said in a podcast, sometimes guests will have a dead look about them or something like that, where it's clear they've given up hope. Talk about that if you feel comfortable. Um, I don't get that very often at all, but I, I have interviewed, uh, and I think th- those tend to be interviews that, that I don't air. Um, and it, yeah, it makes me a little sad because I, one of the reasons why I started the podcast was to bring comfort and hope to people who ha- ha- either haven't recognized what they're up against yet in their battles or recognize what they're up against and f- are feeling hopeless or lost or overwhelmed by it. And when I meet somebody that doesn't have any hope and isn't curious about what they can do it's it's not something that i really want to to air oh because i want each episode on some level to be compelling and and hopeful and hopeful and um while i feel for that person who's in that place um i want an episode to be inspiring right or entertaining or something if you're going to give me an hour and a half or two hours of your your ears so how often has that happened not very often do you have like off the top of your head a favorite guest there's too many there's way too many to to say just say me just say it was me lisa arch was probably the best one that was the good one (laughs) i jessica zucker has to be one of your favorite guests she is and she really helped break break open um the the mom stuff for me the first episode with her and then the second one and um and then how honest she she was with me about her stuff in the in the third one i just feel a, such a mama vibe from her you know i am drawn to mamas yes. i'm just totally drawn to mamas well i mean it makes so much sense yeah um and she's also got that cool smart chick vibe that she you went to fucking love. harvard yeah and she's fuck her really <laughs> um, do you, this is a question that somebody asked. I don't have their name here, but I also also had it written down, uh, which was, do you ever feel more depressed uh, being around people who are not depressed? That's a great question. And sometimes uh, I wouldn't say the word more depressed, but I would say feeling alienated or um, kind of short shorted mm-hmm. in life. When I see families that are joyous together, um, I I feel like almost like a limb is missing like like it's I wasn't aware that that's where a limb should be wow. but then I'll I'll 
I'll feel that feeling and I'll just think, what would that have been like to have been laughing, you know, bouncing on a couch with a bunch of brothers and sisters and have a parent wrap you in their arms and kiss you and, and to feel safe in their, in their arms and to be, and to be cracking jokes and making each other laugh until tears run down your face. Mm -hmm. Um, I just, Anybody that has ever gotten that in their life, I hope they know how blessed they are. That is very powerful. That's really powerful, Paul. Um, you know, it makes me wonder, though, if kids in third world countries that are growing up with nothing, w are they able to feel happiness? I, I think it's completely dependent on the emotional life of... Their parents, I mean, if, you know, if you're, don't know where your next meal is coming from, I, I imagine that has to be a super fucking amazing parent for that darkness to not bleed into your home life. Right. But I, I'm sure there are parents that, that can do that. I, I think emotional poverty is a completely separate thing from food poverty and financial poverty. And there is a crisis in this country of emotional poverty. That's you know? a huge point that you just made is that you can be impoverished. You could you could be you could be from a family where both parents work multiple jobs and you're not seeing them, but when you do see them, their love for you is so palpable that it makes up for all of Absolutely. that. Absolutely. I mean, I think they're finding more and more that quality uh is much more important than yes. quantity. My parents were constantly there physically. Right. Constantly. Oh, and it, it, yeah, that just does it. it really my dad was checked matter. out. My mom was, you know, drinking me in and violating my boundaries. And, and if you had asked me uh, 12 years ago, you know, did you have a happy childhood? I would have said, yeah, my mom was annoying. You know, my dad was kind of, uh, not that interested, but yeah, I had a great childhood. And that's not to say I didn't have great th things right. in my childhood. And we grew up on the edge of a forest preserve that has given me a love of nature that is such a great gift. Mm -hmm. And and we would explore the woods, you know, my friends, and we would play and, and we played baseball and football. And there was uh, uh, just a whole group of kids in our block that were fun to play with when we were all around the same age. And it was almost the exact opposite of what my home oh my. life was like. I mm -hmm. felt a part of, there was joy. So there was this. Were any of those friends from families where you would go to their house and all of a sudden you're sitting at a table with people who love each other, you know, in a different way and are warm and um, did you experience anything like that? Not to, not to the like where I would be jealous right. of that. Um, there, there, there seemed to be dysfunction spread around pretty well wow. through, through my block. Um, but there wasn't, there were no horror stories right. around. Although there was the, the, the family of the kid that molested yeah. me that, there was some darkness in that well, in that family. I think their dog. I think one of the kids was was torturing their dog because it was the meanest fucking thing. And then the older brother, who was one of the sweetest guys I ever met, 
was home on break from college. I think I was probably around 10 or 11, right around that fantastic time. And um, he got in a car accident and died. And we found out years later, somebody who was a witness near the scene said he was drove in an incredibly high speed directly into a concrete wall and the car burst into flames and somebody tried to pull him out and he reached over and locked the door. (gasps) Is that the most chilling thing you've ever heard? Yes. I will now have nightmares for weeks. Are you freaking kidding me? I don't know if it's true or not, but I, it, it seems to fit. It seems like there to was fit. Some major like, shit yeah, I, well, I think a fifteen-year-old, I would think, doesn't molest another kid unless there's horrible shit yeah. going down. Yeah. Is that ignorant of me to say? No. I or is don't that think most? So. That's got to be the case. I don't think it's the case in every case, but I think, in my opinion. You know, I've heard people say, you know, the majority of people that molest weren't molested. I just don't believe that. I just don't believe that. Yeah. Or at least something else is going on. Um, okay. Or do we have a few more minutes? Yeah. Cause I'm gonna... We're talking about me, Lisa. <laughs> we have We are going to drain my entire battery. <laughs> we're, you are a trooper, by the way. We're at two hours and ten minutes. Holy crap. Yeah. This is going to be four episodes long. <laughs> um, all right. Tell me three things you love about yourself. My ability to articulate my feelings. My sense of humor. And I'm going to do a really shallow one. Okay. My legs and my butt. (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) All right. Now, are you ashamed that you admitted that you love three things about yourself? No. Not at all. I could have done more. I Do could have done more. more. Um, that makes me so happy. Uh, my ability to empathize with other people. Um, that's it. Oh, that's <laughs> pathetic. <laughs> I could have done a ton more. <laughs> One. Um, your intake of liquids is always impressive. Uh, how, how much I can hold liquids. <laughs> That's all. Carla is constant. It's like that sketch from uh, Naked Gun where he goes and he pees and it goes on forever. Yes. Almost every time I pee, it's like that. It's like Carla will be in the other room and she'll go, you're kidding me, right? You're kidding me. And I'll go for another 10 seconds That's after that. That's Yeah. Um, do you fear death? Sometimes I look forward to death. Oh. Uh, sometimes I, I fear it when I'm feeling super overwhelmed. In fact, just this last weekend, I was like, uh, I hate to say it out loud, but I was like, I I would welcome like a, something ending, ending this right now. And it's, you know, my back hurt. Herbert needed to go to the vet. Carla was upset because I wasn't doing a lot around the house. It was, you know, I think it was rainy out. I... Uh, there was like four other things and I I just get easily overwhelmed and yeah. I go to the place of it's never going to get better and you know that black and white thinking right that's one of my biggest enemies is black and white thinking and never and forever attaching right. never and forever which is a terrible thing to do to yourself and when you have those thoughts do they ever lead to thoughts of taking your own life no rarely Rarely. Never and never to the point where it's a plan. Okay. It was just, even when I was at my worst, 
it was a fantasy, but right. it was never a okay Wednesday. You know, she's going to be gone all day, ne- never, and never, never got to that never extent. got to that. But but lots of suicidal ideation. Yeah. Wow. And when you think, boy, if it could just all end right now, and this is me asking because I I have a thing where I think about if I were to die today, and then I think of all the things I'd be mortified about, like my house isn't clean enough, and I just stupid diaries from when I was 12 that people will find. And like, I just think if people would, would put together who I am as a human from going through my house, they'd get such the wrong idea of who I am. And then I just start thinking, Oh God, before I die, I have so much to clean up. So do you ever like spin out like that? Like, if, or is it Not just really? I'll Cause just most be of that and it'll be over. Most of my shit I've, I've shared on the podcast mm-hmm. or I've shared with somebody in my support group or I've, shared um in an email with with somebody um but most of it you know most of it right you know it's but not even that i mean just loose ends or you know i don't know do does your brain ever go that far i'd miss the dogs uh, or i hope there's something there when i go or oh i do hope there's something there um but i in many ways i feel like if i found out I, I had a month to live. Um, my probably my first regret would be that I couldn't continue to do this show, mm-hmm. and that I wouldn't see. You know, I wouldn't get more time with my friends and Carla and the dogs. Um, but probably the first positive thought that I would think was that I have really drank from life. I have really I've seen so many things. I've taken so many chances, you know, changing my major from being a doctor. I was almost a, a doctor. I was, I had great grades. I was uh, applying, getting ready to apply to medical, uh, to take the MCATs. What kind of and, doctor would you have been? Oh, I don't know. Half interested, <laughs> shitty one. I told too many jokes. Um, I, and I, and I changed my major to theater because I had this thought, what, what if I'm 30? And I get cancer. Will I be able to look back and say, I took life by the horns? And I thought, no, I won't. And so I changed my major to theater. And I feel like so many instances in my life, I took a gamble. And I've gotten to have this, you know, being on TV for 16 years, getting to to see Europe, getting to ski powder, uh, getting married, um, healing in support groups um playing hockey you know at 52 years of age so many my life has not been small mm-hmm. my life has not been small there's certainly been pockets of it when i'm depressed when i pull away and i make it small but the over you know i learned how to woodwork i learned how to you know do photography and all these all these other things i really feel like i have jumped in the in the deep end wow that's fantastic i'm gonna um get a copy of the mcats just to see how you would do on them now oh my god <laughs> <That'd be> so <laughs> amazing you know my grades were good who knows and maybe i would have tanked them and nobody would take me but i was a, almost a straight a student i was wow. five beta kappa yeah 
That actually surprises me. Yeah. Not because I don't think you're brilliant, because I do, but because I, I'm surprised that you would apply yourself so much as a student. It was mostly fear-based. It was fear oh. that, I, that I would be a failure. It was not passion at all. Wow. And there was also some amphetamines. Those, I hate to say it, but... Wow. Great study aid. Wow. Take that back. Um, what is your favorite quality in a person that you want to be around? Uh, the ability to laugh at themselves and the ability to... I would say a sense of when to be serious and, and when it's okay to be funny. Oh, that's huge. You know, people that are humorous but not in place of vulnerability. Those are my favorite people and people that can laugh at themselves. And what is your least favorite quality in a person? Uh, people that, that um, can't own their shit. Okay. My mom. Yes. And I'm sure that's the extreme. I'm sure even yeah. to a much lesser degree, you're uh, not a yeah. fan of that quality. Do you ever... Do you ever miss drinking? Not really, because so much bad stuff came with it. Yeah. The hangovers, the... But do I miss that first wash of a buzz coming over, that fir the foam on top of a Guinness after a hockey game? Yeah, I miss that that stuff. But, you know, I found natural ways to relax, to, to find peace uh, today. That, that don't have side effects. All the things I listed in the beginning of the podcast, the right. things that I that I do, trying to be of service, praying, meditating, exercise, all that, all that stuff. So that brings me um, a, a a peace that is there, even in the midst of um, uncertainty and unresolved problems. And that's one of the biggest gifts of of sobriety and support groups and reading. Books like A New Earth and Silently Seduced and these other books that have that have helped me. And what? how many years sober are you now? Twelve. Wow. That's freaking amazing. Um, do you... Does it... I, I would imagine it would be difficult sometimes when most of your solace comes from support groups. What that means is you're around a lot of other people who are like you. Exactly. Does that ever get exhausting or is that always does that always fill you up it, it almost always fills me up occasionally i'll be around a single person or a couple of people in there that are exhausting but it's not hard to distance yourself um temporarily or permanently from them because los angeles has so many support groups right um you know if you were in wyoming and it's the same meeting and there's the same three people right. i have a lot of empathy for the people that that's they're, that's your only choice. That's your choice. That's your trade-off. You got the mountains, but you also got <laughs> Earl, who's telling the same story every week. Right. Um, so I'm able to just, you know, surround myself with the people that are safe and... and um, Does help, it help sometimes take you a while to weed out the people who are not, or can you pretty much tell? I get better at, at doing it right away people who don't have boundaries um or who are like pathologically narcissistic or un emotionally unsafe they usually reveal that pretty quickly mm -hmm. you know a lot of times before you've even shaken their hand you know right. you'll hear them share something and you'd be like oh that 
And then you'll hear somebody share something where you're like, you can see a, a glimmer in that person where, yeah, they got a lot of baggage. Right. But you, you're like, I want to reach out to that person. I want to try to help that person. But there will be people sometimes where I'm like, I, I can't that be around that person. Toxic, right. I, that person is toxic. And is there a, God bless anybody that wants to try to right. help them, but, um, I, that can't be me. Is there a danger at all, though, in wanting to rescue someone or help someone? If you think that you are rescuing them, but I, uh, I don't think that I rescue people. I think that I can be a shoulder to lean on, but I'm a shoulder that has boundaries. Okay. And Did uh, you have to learn that, though? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I learned it the hard way. Could you explain that? Oh, yeah. Um, lending people money that oh, spend wow. it, uh, you know, getting high. And, I, you know, I want, oh, this person needs to get on their feet and get in an apartment. And then what you're doing is is you are softening their bottom for them. Right. And they need to be desperate to learn a new way of living. They need to feel the pain of their choices. And I remember the first time I really got that. I was giving this person a ride to a rehab uh, they had gotten fucked up again, and and I stopped the car, and I said, you know what? I think you should take the train to the rehab, because I think, you know, I'm not doing this to be mean, but I think you need to feel the consequences of your decision of going and, and you know, shooting heroin again. Wow. And I hope, you know, I hope this doesn't hurt your feelings, but I think this is a healthy thing for you to experience. And, and, I, made, and I made them, they said that they understood Wow. And so I kind of, uh, and and you know what? One of the people that, that said that to me was my mom, who has been in a support group for codependency. And, um, and she shared with me that you shouldn't, this was years ago, uh, she said don't, something along the lines of what she had heard was don't deny people the dignity of their own bottom. Hmm. And and that stayed with me. And I've heard it multiple times since then. But, you know, which is why my relationship with her was so complicated, because there was this side to her that could get things. Right. And could connect. And yet you never knew when it was going to turn. And it was just. Right. It there was, was never such safe. A, it was never safe. There wasn't a lack of consistency. And there was things that she taught me and gave me that really helped me as a person. She was like one of the few people I remember from childhood that was adamantly like unracist in in a very racist neighborhood wow um that exposed us to people that had very little you know she would have people come in for christmas that were poor and spend time with us and, and we got to see how other people lived so it's it's fucking complicated that people is... are not all dark or no. all all light absolutely um, but that's why she has friends she has friends yeah. who she didn't abuse yeah um, can you tell people, and I'm sure you've done this, but I just think now's another good time, uh, a couple things. One, uh, the best way to find a support group. Mm -hmm. Um, and two, if you are not an addict, but you want to find a support group, uh, you know, to help you with your depression or codependency or any of that, what 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 do you do? I'd, I'd go to a helpguide.org. It's a great um, nonprofit that uh, is a really good resource for any issues that you're you're struggling with. Um, you can also Google the issue that you have mm. and um, support group. 
and see if that brings something up. Um, talk to people, you know, talk to a therapist. Therapists can also, um, uh, I understand that NAMI, uh, N-A-M-I, National Alliance on Mental Illness, uh, has a variety of uh, support groups, not only for people who suffer uh, mental illness, but the loved ones of people um, who suffer with mental illness. Um, so those are a couple of places to, to start. And, and what would you say to somebody who's terrified to take that Everybody's step? terrified to take that step. You're not alone in that. And uh, it's just like jumping into a pool. It's maybe going to be just a little bit of a shock at first, but before you know it, you're going to acclimate and you're going to, it's going to feel cool. That's it's going to feel cool, but get out of your comfort zone. Your comfort zone can, can kill you. Literally, it can kill you. Right. Yeah. All right. I think that's all my questions. I love you so much. I love you too. And I'm so excited you're coming over for Christmas. And you know who's joining us? Who? Is our former uh, guest, uh, Mary O'Hara, and her husband, Colin. I don't know if I ever met You them. are going to fucking love her. I better. She's or we'll be from the place. rough streets of Belfast and went to Oxford. Oh, my and God. Yeah. Yeah. And, and she's just awesome. That's spectacular. Yeah. And so is Colin. So That's great. We're going to have fun. Do they like kids? Uh, yeah. I okay. think so. Okay. Yeah. They will. <laughs> they better. I don't know. I'll be in the other room reading a magazine. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. Well, many thanks to, uh, to Lisa for... Helping me finally get that done. Um, and uh, I decided not to do surveys for this episode because it's already 150 minutes of you hearing my voice. And uh, plus, it'll give the surveys a week uh, to marinate, you know, give the, uh, the awful some moments a little time to caramelize. Uh, we will have to deglaze some of the better awful some moments. Uh, the happy moments, it'll uh, I'll give some of the sugar uh, a little time to, uh, to ripen. I'm already tired of this bit. It'll give Herbert's a little bit of his teeth a little time to brown. Herbert is not doing well, by the way. Um, let me just leave you on that note. I think my dog's dying. Uh, I don't think Herbert is dying. I, that's a lie. I think he's dying. But his butthole will live on. He, uh, he's been coughing a lot. And, uh, and we're worried. We've been taking him to the vet, and the vet trip is always so fucking traumatic for him. Why am I talking about this now? Oh, my God. I'm a basket case. Can this episode please be done? Yes, we are done. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.